When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Unshaken. In fact, welcome back to our second half of New Testament study. It's hard to come down the mountaintop when we've been up there with the Savior, uh, up there to see his Sermon on the Mount or his Transfiguration on the Mount or see him endure the temptations on the Mount, for him to see him climb the hill of Calvary, for him to ascend from an empty tomb. There is so there are the heights of the new of the first half of the New Testament. It's a, it's a challenge to come down from, but I am looking forward to this second half. The second half of any book of scripture usually plays second fiddle to the first. When I taught institute, we had all these statistics of what classes did students want, which were the most popular, and in every book of scripture, the first half outranked the second in terms of student popularity. In the Book of Mormon, we know the first half better. Uh, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, we study that all the time. Maybe it's just the, the beginning and we have some momentum and we begin uh, with all kinds of hope that we'll be able to study the entire book. In the Book of Mormon's case, we get to the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi and uh, struggle through that. Uh, hopefully we pick up speed again in Mosiah and the missionary chapters of, of Alma are so famous. But for whatever reason, the second half seems to be less well-known than the first. The Doctrine and Covenants is the same thing. Again, it might be a matter of momentum. And did we have enough to keep on going all the way to the end? The Old Testament is the hardest because everyone seems to know and love the stories in Genesis and Exodus. Uh, the, be the beginning of the book, the first half, is, is incredible. And so is the second. But most of us don't know as much of what's taking place in you know, first and second Kings or first and second Samuel and the major and minor prophets. But perhaps the hardest of all is the New Testament because we miss Jesus. And <laughs> speaking of transitions from first half to second, if can you imagine what what Joshua must have felt to take the place of Moses? And especially the way the book of Deuteronomy ends where it says, well, and there went Moses and there will never, ever be another prophet quite like unto Moses. Anyway, take it away, Joshua. <laughs> and good luck with that introduction. Good luck filling those sandals, right? Well, if Joshua had a hard time filling the, the shoes of Moses, imagine the impossible task that was placed on Peter's shoulders to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to lead the church after his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And yet that's what we'll begin seeing today. The Acts of the Apostles is absolutely incredible scripture. And in some ways it's closer to our time period, not just chronologically, but in terms of relevance than, than the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because in the Gospels, Jesus was physically present, but not in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he is still leading the church. But he is doing so through living apostles. And that is still what is happening today. 
So I hope that in our study in the next couple of weeks in the book of Acts, we will see incredible relevance to our, our time period. And what is it like to still see the hand of God leading his work forward, but doing it oh, one step removed, doing it by way of revelation to, to apostles of God. From there, we'll go to the letters of Paul, which are absolutely incredible, but can be difficult to understand. I'll, I'll t- t- quick story to kind of put in perspective this second half of the of the New Testament. When I was I was teaching at BYU years ago on a one year rotation prior to being sent out to wherever church education decided to send me, and I was a little nervous about that, wondering where I would go. Uh, Christmas time came in two thousand five. And I was still waiting for the phone call to let me know where I'd be going. It was almost like waiting for a mission call, but this time it's more than two years and I'm bringing my whole family with me. Well, the new year dawned in 2006 and I wondered what book of scripture I should study. For several years, I had been doing every book of scripture, a little bit every day, a little Old Testament, a little New Testament, a little Book of Mormon, a little Doctrine and Covenants, tiny bit of Pearl Great Price, and reading the entire standard works each year. And that was wonderful, but I missed the chance to really stop and slow down and smell the roses. And as you know, I, I tend to prefer that. Let's go verse by verse and phrase by phrase and pick it apart and really try to understand what's going on here. That's why these videos take so long. Feel free to break them up over your week. Well, I wanted to get back into that. And I had done some of that before, but as, 20, as 2006 dawned, I thought, oh, what book of scripture? If I remember correctly, I think I started with the Old Testament thinking, yeah, it's been a while since I've studied that in depth. So let's start over with that. And I began reading Genesis. And just felt like, no, this, but beautiful scripture, don't get me wrong, but this, the Lord wants me somewhere else this year. And so I jumped up probably, I think, to the Doctrine and Covenants and dove in and loved that book, but again felt, no, okay, well, I spend more time in the Book of Mormon than anything else. Is that where you want? No, no, not, okay, I guess New Testament is what we're left with by default. So opened up to Matthew chapter one and started beginning the study there. And again felt like, ooh, you're close, but not quite there. So where do you want me to study? And I really felt an impression, study the second half of the New Testament. Specifically, study the letters of Paul. And so I skipped over Acts, turned to the book of Romans, and began studying, and just felt this beautiful, confirming spirit. This is what you need right now. Within a week or two, I got my phone call and Salt Lake said, well, we've got the perfect perfect spot for you. We want you to move to Nashville, Tennessee. And there in the buckle of the Bible Belt, uh, the Protestant Vatican, as it's also been called, I realized why the Lord was trying to give me a head start. You see, as Latter-day Saints, the two halves of the New Testament, we know and love the first half. And we get kind of confused in the second. But our wonderful evangelical Christian friends tend to know the second half of the New Testament like the back of their hands. They know the letters of Paul and its rich theology. We don't always see eye to eye on what Paul is saying. He's tricky. But I realized that the Lord was trying to help me get ready for my time in in evangelical Christianity, my time in the Bible Belt, and wanted me to know the letters of Paul better than I did. I had an incredible experience, not just studying it that year, but then going and comparing notes with my neighbors. We will have that experience in this second half of the, of the New Testament. And in some ways, it's not half and half. It's moving straight through. Do you remember how John ended his gospel last week? Uh, setting things up for a sequel. <laughs> remember this. The last verse 
of the last gospel that we have. John chapter 21, verse 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. And if that's not a to be continued, dot, 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 I don't know what is. There is so much more of what Jesus did, and not just during his mortal ministry. It's what he has been doing ever after. And like I said, as we shift to mortal, from mortal ministry to post-mortal ministry, it's so applicable to our time period, which is post-mortal ministry as well. Not only is John setting you up for a sequel, but Luke did too. In fact, it's Luke that gave us the sequel, the book of Acts. So as we turn here and begin our study in Acts chapter 1, it is the same author as the book of Luke. In fact, many scholars refer to them both together as the book, singular, of Luke-Acts. Luke-Acts. And so in some ways, what Luke is trying to accomplish here is present first chapter, so to speak, uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ in mortality, and then second chapter or second half, this is how his ministry continued in the hands of the apostles. So think about that in terms of what we're going to be studying. I have heard it said that Acts of the Apostles is, is too short a title for what this book ought to be. And if Acts of the Apostles is too short, then Acts is way too short. In fact, it's probably the, the lamest name, abbreviated name for a book you could get. Because it's just acts. A-C-T-S. The acts. Like the activities. The actions. In the Spanish Bible, it's called hechos. Which just means deeds. Stuff. Things people did. <laughs> and if we just call it acts. I mean, if you think about acts of the apostles, which of those words is more important? Acts or apostles? I mean, if we're going to abbreviate it at all, let's just call it apostles. We're going to be studying the book of the apostles. And primarily, we will see Peter and John today. We'll move to the second half. We'll focus more on, on Paul. But to see the acts of the apostles, it's incredible that we have apostles leading the church. And that the Lord did not leave his disciples without inspired leadership. And that's the same case in our church today. So keep an eye out for that. But if we're going to expand it from Acts to Acts of the Apostles, we could, we could expand it even further. Because it's still the acts of Jesus. It just happens to be done through the apostles as they are guided by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Remember that's how the book of John ends also? Of Jesus promising, I will send the Comforter. I will leave so he can come. And, or as the book of Luke ends, stick around the temple. You will be endowed with power from on high. And some of that endowment of power will come through the gift of the Holy Ghost as Jesus breathes on his followers after his resurrection. Well, that breath, that wind, that spirit is going to be blowing strong in what we study today. So, are you ready? Yeah, we're going to be studying the, the Acts of the Apostles. And one of the greatest things about it is the fact that God is still at the helm. He is still leading his church. And, and again, that is true in our day. One last story, and then we'll dive into Acts chapter 1, verse 1. One of my favorite things about Divinity School, and there I was in, there in Nashville, uh, surrounded by evangelical Christian friends who knew their Bible well, 
I would study it as much as I could, and we, we compared notes in, in beautiful ways. But I remember one semester, every semester, the Divinity School has a class that meets at the, maxim, the Maximum Security Prison in Nashville. And it's an opportunity, particularly for those students that are preparing for the ministry. If they're choosing a prison ministry, then this is perfect. But also in terms of studying pastoral care and counseling and, and how do we work with people that may be struggling in major ways. Uh, for those preparing for ministerial callings in life, it was an amazing opportunity. But every semester, it would kind of rotate through the different departments of the Divinity School, and one semester would be a class on pastoral care. Another class would, uh, another semester it would be some class offered from kind of the, the psychology of religion. Another one, it would be from the, theolo from the theology uh, side of things. And another semester would be from the historical studies. Now, personally, my PhD was in American religious history, so it was a historical studies. And the semester that historical studies was going to go to the prison, I signed up for that class, just intrigued on what the experience would be like. We, the specific subject of our study was racism, slavery, and the Bible in antebellum America. And to study those topics uh, with fellow Divinity School students and, and inmates, it was an amazing experience. And I got to know some amazing people that were that had gone through hard things and were paying the consequences of that but good people that had made mistakes and a desire to learn and to change and so on it was amazing anyway one particular day in class we had we'd been studying the the conversations and that's a soft way of putting it the conflicts between north and south in their debates over slavery based on the bible and northern ministers were saying the, the, the scriptures are completely against slavery. The entire spirit of the gospel, oh, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Where's the golden rule in slavery? To which the southern ministers would say, well, that means treat them as you'd be treat, want to be treated. Well, if you were a slave, how would I want to be treated? It's not outlying slavery. It's just saying we should be kind slave masters. Well, they weren't that either for the most part. But that's how the southern ministers responded. In fact, the southern ministers were often on the attack, saying to the northern ministers, you show me in the Bible where slavery is outlawed. It's practiced in the Old Testament. It's never condemned in the New Testament. Well, go study the book of Philemon when there's an escaped slave, Onesimus. And Paul writes Philemon a letter saying that, and it tells Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon. And Philemon, please treat him as a brother and not simply as a servant. But Southern ministers were like, hey, Book of Philemon, that's basically the New Testament's equivalent of the Fugitive Slave Act. So deal with that, Northern ministers. It was dicey in those decades leading up to the Civil War. And North and South split not only on political lines, but on religious ones too. And the Bible became their battleground. Now, we've been studying those kinds of things all semester. But this one particular week, we were studying a book of of sermons and and correspondence between a northern baptist and a southern baptist minister and these two ministers were just going at it bible bash almost to say if if slavery was if the bible was for or against the institution of slavery uh, the south actually had the advantage because they didn't have to do any explaining they just stood on a common sense reading of the bible straightforward saying it's not outlawed anywhere in it, and it was practiced there, and so where are you coming up with your abolitionism? 
to which the northern ministers would again have to rely upon the spirit of the Bible. But as it's been said before, if you're explaining, you're losing. And the north had all the explaining to do. Well, in one particular place, and this is the, the part that blew me away. I had to, when, when we went to the prison the following week to discuss our study, I couldn't help but bring this up. Because in the conversation between this Northern Baptist and Southern Baptist, the Northern Baptist is saying, among other things, not only is the spirit of the gospel against, uh, against slavery, but those were more barbaric times 2,000 years ago. And we have progressed as a civilization, and we understand the, the shared humanity of all of God's children. To which the Southern Baptist minister responded, Oh, wait, wait, wait. We know more now than they did then? We've progressed as a civilization beyond the period in which the Bible itself was written. As far as the Southern Baptist was concerned, when God was revealing truth to apostles, when Christ himself was walking on the earth, that's the apex. It's kind of all been downhill since then. And all we have is the Bible and nothing more. God stopped speaking after the Bible was, was done. Case closed, closed canon. And so the Southern Baptist was saying, what do you mean we're, we have additional light and additional insight and we've grown beyond those barbaric ages when Christ and his apostles walked the earth? His pushback was, if you're saying there's greater light and knowledge since then, please tell me, where's it coming from? In fact, the way he put it was what riveted my attention. And I brought up this quote in class so we could discuss it together. This Southern Baptist minister, pro-slavery through and through, wrote this. Is it true then that a Christian at the South, in his day that is, possesses greater advantages than a Christian in apostolic times for ascertaining his duty? If he does, whence does he derive them? In other words, where is this light coming from? A converted master in Corinth or Galatia or Rome had the very same scriptures. In other words, they had the same words we do, and we're confined to that canon. That's all we've got. But then he said the part that, <laughs> that rocked me. This Southern Baptist pro-slavery minister said, and he, that Christian in apostolic times, not only had the scriptures, but he had too the living inspired apostles, enjoying in their personal presence and instruction an advantage which no succeeding age has known, and which, we feel, would at this moment terminate not only this dispute, but a great many others. I protest then against any permission given to men to tamper with the word of God on the plea that the times are changed. And he went on from there. Again, what amazed me by, by this admission of this Southern Baptist minister writing in the decades leading up to the Civil War, was almost this nostalgic regret, I wish we still had apostles. Those that lived in the ancient day had the same scripture we do. And that's the scripture I'm sticking with, because that's all I've got. But they had something more than that. They had living, breathing, leading, revealing apostles of God. And that is an advantage, he said, that no intervening generation has had. Certainly not ours. 
as we're wrestling with these things and disputing over issues. Oh, if only living apostles were among us, I'm sure they could settle the matter. And probably not just that one, but so many others as well. Ever since I have thought of the phrase, the apostolic advantage, and what that consists of, it's not infallibility. Now, we'll see in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul some struggle on their part as they're trying to come to grips with conflict in their time period. We're not talking divinity at 100% and humanity at 0%. It's never that way. Okay, God works through humans, right? And you will see human fingerprints and divine fingerprints all over the history that we'll study in this, in this book. But to have the advantage of servants of God, called of God, authorized by God, to receive revelation from God. Again, I couldn't help but bring up the fact that when this Southern Baptist minister was pining for an apostolic advantage, there were people in the United States at the time who bore an apostolic mantle. Oh, it was still hard for Latter-day Saint apostles to navigate that time period too. But to pay a price, to try to come to understand the will of God, is something that called and authorized apostles have been doing ever since. So, may we rejoice in the apostolic advantage portrayed in the book of Acts, and more personally, may we thank God for the apostolic advantage He has given us to still call such servants in our day. So, you ready? Are you ready to move forward uh, and leave Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John behind? Well, not Luke. He's writing this. Uh, but to turn to the book of Acts. If so, chapter 1, verse 1, notice how he begins his book. Or continues it, I should say. Verse 1, the former treatise have I made. In other words, the book of Luke, which I have written. O Theophilus, that's his audience here of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. It's a mouthful, but it's an amazing introduction. In some ways, Luke is putting it all out there in the very first verse or two. Former treatise, Luke. Current treatise, Acts. And what's a treatise? This is something I'm trying to explain. This is a point I'm trying to prove. Uh, this is the court case, and I am arguing for the divinity of Jesus. Notice his audience, O Theophilus. Theophilus is a beautiful Greek name. Uh, we, if you ever meet a Theo, chances are it's short for Theodore, but man, Theophilus would be a cool name. Theo is the Greek root for God like theology or atheism, okay? So we've got God and then Phyllis, P-H-I-L, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Ah, so Phil is love in Greek. So Theophilus, two possibilities, either means one who is loved by God. Oh, John would perk up his ears for that one. Like, ooh, a disciple whom Jesus loved, a Theophilus, fantastic. Or turn around the direction of that love, and it's someone who loves God. Picture a Theophilus as a lover of God. Someone who has learned of Christ, and the love of God made manifest in him through the Gospel of Luke. 
And now Luke moving forward to continue showing how much God loves his children as he manifests that love now through the ministry of his apostles. So whether this is a specific person, some have suggested he's some kind of wealthy patron, and he's uh, providing the, the funds that Luke would need to continue his literary ministry and conduct all of the, the interviews that he needs to to be able to gather together the material to reconstruct the life of Christ in the Gospels and to share the ministry of the Apostles in the book of Acts. So Theophilus may be a wealthy patron, and that's his literal name. On the other hand, this could simply be a title to the envisioned audience Luke has in mind, including us. Who am I writing to? Oh, to every Theophilus out there, to every lover of God that wants to know even more about him, more examples of God's love for us and more chances for us to prove our love to him. So, about my brothers and sisters, my fellow Theophili, this book is for us. And what is it teaching? Well, notice the way he phrases it. That former treatise, that book of Luke, that entire gospel, was only what Jesus began to do and teach. Wait, wait, began? Didn't the book of Luke end when Christ's ministry ended? I mean, chapter 24 extends it a little bit with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, uh, talking to those disciples that, that journeyed there themselves. But the, it's over. And by the time the book of Luke ends, we've seen everything that Jesus did and taught during his mortal ministry. And I love the thought of Luke going, well, yeah, but even that was just the beginning. The mortal ministry was only the start. And Jesus will continue to do and teach in the second part of the treatise, not just the first. The first was just the beginning. Do you remember we studied this when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished? But then we turned to Doctrine and Covenants 19 and realized, well, what was finished? Oh, only my preparations unto the children of men. Fully prepared through a condescension, through a word-made flesh human experience, filled with an infinite empathy as a result, Jesus is now prepared to apply his atonement to every circumstance. He is fully prepared to lead mortals home to God, even if it's through other mortals that he will continue to work. Oh, th that phrase really ought to put in perspective everything we'll study from here on out. It's still Jesus doing. Acts of the apostles, no, it's the acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles. It's still Jesus teaching and yes, we will hear these teachings in the voice of Peter. We'll read them in the voice of Paul. But they're Christ's teachings. He's continuing his ministry, the ministry he began in mortality. And from start to finish in the book of Luke, or Matthew, Mark, or John. That's just the start, just the beginning. And then how does he end that second verse? All that was just until the day he was taken up. After he threw the Holy Ghost had given commandments to the apostles. That the first two verses of Acts really do put it all in perspective. Jesus is still in charge. He's still doing the teaching. It's through chosen apostles who now have the gift of the Holy Ghost. Revelation 
is how they will be directed. And just in case you forgot the link between Christ and his servants, look at verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive. After his passion, his passion, JST changes that to sufferings, because that's what the original Greek word means. But this, the passion, the feeling, the suffering behind all that Jesus went through in the past few weeks of what we studied at the end of his life, after all of that passionate pain, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. That is such a profound phrase. Infallible proofs, many of them. He starts the list, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is that post-resurrection ministry of Jesus among the apostles, preparing them for all that lay ahead. That's why it lasted 40 days. If you think about the symbolism of that number and 40 days and 40 nights of rain for the flood to purify the earth and prepare it for a new beginning, 40 years in the wilderness to purify and prepare the Israelites for their entry into the promised land, Moses and Elijah and their 40-day fasts to prepare themselves and purify themselves for the work that lay ahead, Jesus doing the same thing at the beginning of his ministry, well, here's the other bookend. And at the end of his ministry, it is 40 days of trying to prepare and purify the apostles for all that lay ahead for them. So that 40-day ministry, Jesus is showing himself to them. We saw that all last week. And his visitations to Mary Magdalene and to the other women, to Peter on his own, to the, uh, the 11 apostles, well, the 10 apostles assembled. Then the following week when, Ju- when, when Doubting Thomas all of a sudden, is no longer doubting. He knows for sure. His visitation to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Many infallible proofs. They know that Jesus still lives, still does, still teaches, still acts within his church. He's in charge of it, after all. I'll say this, too. There have been times I've asked my students to put the word infallible and apostles or prophets into the same sentence. And as we wrestle with prophetic fallibility and wonder where the idea comes from that for whatever reason, we look at the apostles and prophets and, and demand absolute perfection on their part. They're supposed to be infallible. I said, well, the scriptures do speak of apostles, often, obviously, and mention the word infallible in the same breath. And they're like, really? It says that somewhere? I said, well, yeah, but look how it's said. And it's right there in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where you have these apostles. But they aren't infallible. It's that their witness of the resurrection is infallible. They have received many infallible proofs that Jesus is alive and well and still leads his church. I I hope we can understand that as we wrestle with the challenges of following fallibility. We'll see fallibility among the apostles in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul. We, We recognize the fallibility of human beings in our own day. But as I often reassure my students, unanimity helps offset fallibility. That's a beautiful reassurance. And again, they were never meant to be infallible to begin with. Their testimony 
is what was. Christ proved himself in infallible ways that he still lives. And apostles know that. They absolutely know it. Well, verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he's still speaking of Jesus here. Jesus was assembled with them. All those visitations we saw last week. And he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Not many days hence. There will be this endowment of power from on high. Stay close to the temple to receive it. Stay here in Jerusalem, where you see the departure of the second member of the Godhead. Prepare yourself for the arrival of the third. That is what needs to happen. Again, there's so much that will happen beyond back in Galilee. I'll meet you there as well. We saw that in John chapter 21 last week. But for now, stay here and wait for the promise of the Father. The Holy Ghost will be coming shortly. But then the apostles have a question. Verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You get a sense of their, the impatience on their part. Uh, you're, you're back. You've returned. You did talk about a second coming. Wow, that was fast. Uh, and now that you're back with us, are, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I, I mean, granted, we probably jumped the gun a bit, assuming that you were a military messiah and wanting you to throw off the Roman yoke and, and deliver thy chosen people. Moses 2.0, right? Uh, to usher in the messianic age and the kingdom of God. Oh, it's, we're, we're closing in on 40 days. I mean, it is, are, are we ready now? Should we go muster the troops and begin to establish thy kingdom? It's, oh, it's, it's still going to be a while. Don't be impatient, my chosen ones, because this is a coming, but it's not the second coming. And thy kingdom will come. Keep praying for that, okay? The Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the kingdom needs to be built before the kingdom can be brought. And the kingdom of heaven must go forth so that the kingdom of heaven may come. Zion below, preparing for Zion above. We see that all throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, for example. But here, just wait for the promise of the Father. The Holy Ghost will come. But he's not bringing the kingdom in its political aspect. He's confirming the kingdom in its spiritual form. That's what you should be preparing for. So, verse 7 and 8, to answer their question, he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power. By the way, that's where the early church leaders got the name of one of their very first newspapers. Times and Seasons. It's right there in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. And it's something we don't really know. I mean, second coming, we don't know the day nor the hour. We kind of know the time through the signs of the times. We kind of know the season. Oh, is summer nigh? <laughs> Will judgment soon be coming? But for you, coming of the kingdom? No, I'm not going to spell it out. You don't know the times or the seasons. And yet... Though you don't know the when, you can know so much of the who, and the what, and the where, and the why, and the how. And a lot of that is what he says next. But ye shall receive power, 
after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. That's the how. Okay, that endowment of power that Luke recorded in chapter 24, it's going to happen in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2. So that, and that power that will come through the power of the Holy Ghost, that's how that, the kingdom will ultimately come. Don't know the time, don't know the season, but that's the process through the power of the Holy Ghost. He says, ye shall be witnesses unto me. And that's the what and the who. The who isn't the Savior in a personal return. We're still waiting for that. The who is the apostles. And the what is the fact that they are witnessing of Jesus so that all of Christ's followers can know that he's still in charge. So that the world will know of what the Savior has done for them. So you will be witnesses unto me. Then, how's this for the where? Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You get the sense of these concentric circles expanding the gospel's reach until it fills the whole world? We're going to start here in Jerusalem, so I told you to stay for a while. From there we will expand to encompass all Judea, but to that point it's still the Jews that we're teaching. Remember in Christ's ministry, especially when he met the, the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician, and said, sorry, we're, we're kind of confined to God's chosen people. And then he breaks his own rule when she shows her faith. Remember that beautiful story? Well, Christ starts in Judea among the, the Jews. But from there, he says, let's take it to Samaria. And again, he jumped the gun repeatedly on that one too. I'll reveal myself as the Messiah first to a Samaritan woman at the well. I will convert her whole, her whole village. I won't, be, I won't be shy about taking the shortcut and going straight through Samaritan territory. But let's te begin teaching the gospel more formally to them. And then the final stage, to the uttermost part of the earth. That would have been mind-blowing for these apostles. Are, are you serious? I mean, I've, I've barely traveled outside of my own nation. Well, prepare yourself <laughs> to, to spread your wings and fly, especially once we meet Paul later in the book of Acts, the apostle to the Gentiles, especially after his conversion. We will see these concentric circles extending outward, far beyond anything they could have imagined. So far then, though we don't yet know the when, of the coming of the kingdom. We understand the who, and we understand the how. We understand the where and the what. And you apostles better know the why. After all that I've done for you, I pray you know why you are extending the good news of Jesus Christ in every direction. Are you ready to take up the cross daily? Are you ready to bear apostolic witness of me? Are you ready to go preach and be persecuted as a result? Remember what Jesus says to Peter at the end of John 21. Follow me, even if it means to a cross of your own. That's exactly what these apostles will do. Now verse 9 through 11 Notice what happens next. They've received this commission. We saw the Great Commission at the end of, of Matthew chapter 28. But in some ways, here's Jesus reminding them of it at the beginning of the book of Acts. And in verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. There's the ascension. And as far as an assembled body of apostles, 
Are you ready to do this work without Jesus physically present among you? There will yet be other visions and visitations, but post-ascension, Jesus has other work to do himself and other sheep that were not of that fold to visit. Oh, turn to Third Nephi. <laughs> Go see what else Jesus is doing. Remember, his mortal ministry was just the beginning of what he said and did. But these apostles, well, you're now on your own. Well, not quite. <laughs> the Spirit will soon come. But notice what they do next. And this is so natural. I, I'm sure I would do the same. The cloud comes, receives Jesus out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And what I love about this, I picture in my mind these apostles just so devastated, so sad, kind of like the third Nephi 17 crowd of please tarry with us a little longer. That same sense the disciples on the road to Emmaus had, please tarry, abide with us, tis eventide. And the thought of, it was devastating enough to see the crucifixion and to know that Jesus was leaving us. But now to know that he's conquered death, can't you stay forever? You can still lead the church, and you can do it personally, directly, firsthand. Please do not leave us. But as he ascends, and this cloud begins to obscure their view, I would be craning my neck and squinting my eyes and straining every muscle to keep an eye on that, that dot that is beginning to disappear in the distance. I remember... Oh, as a new, fairly newly wed and brand new father, my wife and our baby flying to Texas to go visit some friends. And I was at the airport. This is before 9-11, so there weren't quite so many restrictions. And I could walk with them all the way to the, to the gate. But when they went down the tunnel and got on the plane, I just stood there watching through the window until the plane taxied down the runway. And I happened to be able to, I was at a spot where I actually saw the takeoff and watched the ascent as it began to be shrouded in the clouds. And I just stood there staring until not only could I no longer see the plane, but I couldn't even tell exactly where or how long ago it had disappeared. I just kept my eye riveted on the spot where I last saw it. I prayed and said, Heavenly Father, everything that matters to me is on that plane. Please take care of it. Actually, there's a funny verse in, not a funny, it's funny now to me, but there's a verse in, in the book of Moses when Enoch has this vision and, and he sees Noah and the ark and he says, that God held the ark in his own hands. And I reminded the Lord of that verse and just said, will you please hold that plane in your own hands like you did the ark of Noah? And he did. My wife and daughter arrived in Houston safely and were there just in time for some massive flooding they had. And I, I, I Father, you knew that's not what I meant <laughs> about the ark. Oh, God has a good sense of humor. Anyway. 
to think about these apostles staring off into the distance, wishing Jesus could stay, worried if they would be adequate on their own. But what I love in that moment is at some point you got to bring your head back down. At some point you, you, you look around you instead of looking above you. And by the time they look down and around, oh, where'd you guys come from? There's these two angels standing there. And you wonder, how long have you guys been here? Oh, for a while. Uh, are your necks sore from craning them heavenward? Uh, what are you doing looking up? The way these angels say it is classic. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that you just saw disappear is going to come back again in like manner. And on the one hand, I picture them reassuring the apostles. The second coming is a, a guarantee. And so you have not lost him forever. He will return. But I wonder on the other hand, if there's this kind of gentle nudge like, come on guys. Just like he ascended, he will descend again. And he doesn't want to come back and see you still standing here. He wants the kingdom built so the kingdom can be brought. He wants you to do what he just commissioned you to accomplish. So what are you doing standing around? Get going. Why look up when you should be looking out and moving forward? I'm grateful that your vertical loyalties will keep you keeping the first great commandment. But the second great commandment is like unto it. And there's the horizontal cross beam of the cross. Get out and preach the gospel, just like he said. And so they will. So verse 12, Then returned they unto Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet. Olivet, the Mount of Olives, was the scene of the ascension. There's his departure. But it's also the scene of the Olivet Discourse that focused so heavily on his promised return. So again, perfect location for the angels to say that. Which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So that's how far it is to go from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. About as far as you can go on a day of rest. Well, the day of rest is over. We got work to do. So let's move forward. And they would. Now, when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. Is this ringing some bells, reminiscent of the Last Supper? Well, they're going to have some first suppers now as they, as they carbo-load and ready to go out on these missions. But they go up to this upper room where abode both Peter and James and John. There we see Peter mentioned first, chief apostle. Peter, James, and John. Are we kind of sensing a first presidency of sorts taking shape? The rock and the sons of thunder mentioned first. And then other apostles that hopefully by now we've come to know and love through the Gospels. Andrew, Philip, Thomas. Notice he's not given any kind of description. <laughs> he's Thomas. We'll, we'll, we'll leave the past behind. Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, that's Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the brother of James, not Judas Iscariot. He's gone. Those are the 11 apostles, all present and accounted for, sir. Reporting for duty. Send us forth. Now, these all continued with one accord, and keep your eye out for the place of unity among Christ's followers. Remember, that's what Jesus had prayed for in the great intercessory prayer of John 17. Please bless them to be one with each other and one with us in the same way that you and I are one, Father. Well, it's happening. They're continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication. And if there's one beautiful way to become one with each other and with God, it's through prayer and supplication. Worship makes us one. 
worship unifies worshipers, ties them all to the one common goal, God himself. Well, they were with one accord, prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. These are these sister saints that always seem to be there, ready to lift where they stand at any moment. And remember who's writing the book of Acts? Luke is. And who mentioned the sister saints more than any other gospel writer? Luke did. So he will maintain this male-female unity and equality moving forward. Well, there they are, gathered together, the apostles, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren, which could refer to disciples in general, or perhaps even half-siblings of Jesus, that are finally gaining a testimony of who their older brother had always been. This is an incredible group, and in some ways, well, welcome to church. Jerusalem Firstborn. Actually, by now, it's probably still the Jerusalem First Branch. We've got some growing to do, but give us time. We'll get there. Uh, it reminds me of Joseph Smith and the assembled priesthood leaders in the first days of our dispensation. A one-room schoolhouse that can contain the entire assembled priesthood-holding army of God. Wow, what a little band. And yet, as Joseph told them, you have no idea what the future holds. He invited them to bear their testimonies. And I'm sure they were beautiful, but Joseph said at the end, those were beautiful testimonies. But you don't know any more than a babe upon its mother's lap what the destiny of this kingdom will be. It will grow to fill North and South America. It will grow to fill the world. <laughs> Bold words, Joseph. And yet we're seeing them fulfilled all around us. Picture the same thing happening here. This fledgling faith. This tiny drop that's about to send ripples across the world. So let's get to work. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Here's the chief apostle taking charge. And we will see Peter singled out repeatedly as the one the Lord has called, the rock which he has planted, upon which he will continue to build his church. I, like I said last week, I don't think we're going to see much of Simon ever again. It's Peter through and through. Uh, I will pray for you, Simon, Jesus had said, that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Well, he's starting to do just that. So Peter stands up in the midst and said, now the number of names together were about 120. So far beyond just those initial apostles. In fact, you could almost picture each apostle being kind of a captain of 10. And this growth is just the beginning. But here, if we're going to have 12 apostles and we have 120 people, a good teacher-student ratio, you could say. But Peter says to them, men and brethren, and he could have added women and sisteren as well, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Now, this is fascinating. All throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Peter do all kinds of things, but you never really hear him teach. You see him testify, but teaching, preaching, hmm, that's, that's not in the books. Here it is. And what's he doing first? He's quoting scripture. And we'll see him do it repeatedly. Oh, for an unlearned fisherman, he paid close attention in synagogue. 
or at least paid close attention whenever Jesus taught Scripture. And he's learned well. And what he's doing is using Scripture to try to make sense of the situation they find themselves in. Judas betrayed Jesus. In a way, he betrayed us all. Now, that doesn't shake my faith. Because remember at the Last Supper, when Jesus first said that one of you will betray me tonight, he told us, I tell you this before, so you can believe. So you know I saw it coming, and it won't shake your faith. Instead, it will confirm it. And that's what it did for Peter and the rest. Jesus saw that coming. So there must have been some... In fact, I think David saw it coming too. I love the thought of Peter trusting Jesus, but also kind of his mind racing through the scriptures that he had to try to make sense of his situation. That is good advice or a good example for us to follow. Whatever situation you find yourself in, I've said this before, that's when you gather your cloud of witnesses. All the scriptural stories you know and present your circumstance to them and then ask them for advice. Do any of you have anything to say to my situation in terms of what I should do to help me make sense of it? That's what the chief apostle Peter is doing here. So David, by the Holy Ghost, he couldn't possibly have known something like this on his own, but he said more than he knew, and that's what the Spirit allows you to do. And we'll see the Spirit doing a lot of that from here on out. But let's see what David said. Well, if it's David, we're going to turn to the Psalms. And that's exactly what Peter does. So, first, their own situation. Verse 17. For he, Judas, was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry, the apostolic ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Asildama, that is to say, the field of blood. So what Peter's doing first, he's kind of pausing here. It's like, you know, this situation about Judas, the one that betrayed Jesus, the one that led the army into the shadows of Gethsemane. Notice Peter isn't bringing up his, <laughs> his role with the sword and the servant's ear, but eh, that's behind us. But what Judas did actually reminds me of something that David had once said by the Holy Ghost. But speaking of Judas, <laughs> Peter's kind of bouncing back and forth here. This is what Judas did, and he describes Judas's suicide. We talked about this a few weeks ago uh, when he went out and hanged himself, and then the rope, rope must have broken, and he, again, gory details here. But this is what we see. Uh, the field of blood, the potter's field that was purchased with the blood money that the Jewish leaders wouldn't take back. Uh, all of that. But as Peter is walking them through the current circumstance, then he ties it into Scripture. And this is verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Sure enough, there's David's handwriting. Let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein. And that describes this field of blood beautifully. This is a desolate habitation. In fact, nobody's inhabiting it at all. No man will dwell there. This will be a place for the dead to be buried, not a place for the living to dwell. So there we got the fields of blood. Are we seeing clarification through the scriptures of, of what Judas has done? But then where do we go from here? Well, keep reading the psalm. And his bishopric let another take. And bishopric meaning his stewardship, his responsibility, 
whatever mission it was that he'd been given. That bishopric, that shepherding assignment. A bishop is a pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. David was a good shepherd himself. And so for him to think of someone being, oh, having his responsibility removed, what do you do with it then? Well, he says it right there. You give it to someone else. There is a precedent being set here, but it's something that Peter himself has never faced. Jesus called the original 12 apostles. Are, are, are we always meant to have 12? Or now that we're down to 11, is that the new norm? Again, I, I feel for Peter. We're talking uncharted territory. And not only is it hard to step into the Savior's shoes, it's hard to walk in places the Savior didn't walk. Jesus didn't have to deal with something like this. We never saw it happen. So as Peter, chief apostle, is trying to make sense of things to, to do, he turns to Scripture, tries to gather from God's Word an understanding of God's will. And he sees something in the book of Psalms that seems to speak to his situation. Now, is that exactly what David meant? Was he writing about Judas in that level of prophetic clarity? In context, I would say no. But that's why Peter said, oh, he was speaking through the Holy Ghost and therefore said more than he knew. There's a beautiful, almost flexibility with Scripture that Peter is showing here of helping us see that Scripture is not only meant to explain its immediate environment, but meant to help us navigate our own. I've said to my students, Scripture is not only a catalog of past revelation, it's a catalyst for ongoing revelation. It's something that not only tells us what happened to others, it helps us figure out what ought to happen with ourselves. And that's how Peter is approaching things. So the, his final kind of takeaway from this scriptural passage is there ought to be 12 apostles. And the precedent is now, will now be set that we replace those who have departed for whatever reason. His bishopric must be given to another. So with that insight, it's the position, not the person that matters. That's huge. What do we do then? Verse 21, wherefore, so consequently, as a result of what we now understand, wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, that is the clearest and most concise description of the qualifications of an apostle you'll ever see in Scripture. Section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants has some great things to say about this as well. But here in Acts, when an apostle is about to be replaced, what are they looking for? What are our criteria for calling someone? First, they have companied with us. They have proven their loyalty. They, they have some experience, some lived experience following Christ and following Christ's followers. So that's one thing. Have they accompanied with us? And second, 
can they be a witness with us of his resurrection? Because that's what we're ordaining him to be, to be ordained a witness of the resurrection. That's amazing. That is the definition of an apostle, as far as Acts chapter 1 is concerned. We refer to them in our day as special witnesses. Oh, and not only are they special witnesses, but their witness is so special. Because it's witnessing the resurrection of Jesus by many infallible proofs. Being able to bear testimony that he lives because they know that. And I think if we have ears to hear in their testimonies, we will know what they know. We will know that they know it. And through the power of the Holy Ghost, it will be confirmed in our hearts that which has been confirmed in theirs. I, back to the idea of an apostolic advantage. My friends, it's hard to grow up, especially the rising generation, in such an anti-institutional age in which we've, we've been burned so many times by institutions that are too big to fail but end up failing us that we start to worry about every institution. We start to hunker down in our oh, hyper-individualism, and it's me against the world, and it's my truth that matters, and it's my authenticity. Culture itself is making it hard for us to follow the prophet. But for us to understand the apostolic advantage and recognize that at the head of the church is Christ, but that he has revealed himself to servants of the living God, we can take their witness seriously. Well, there, if those are the criteria, who meets those criteria? And thankfully, there's more than one. There's, there's some choices to be made. Well, maybe, maybe it's not thankful for them. It's like, if there's only one, then yeah, you're the apostle. But there's more than one. So verse 23, they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. He doesn't have all those callings and surnames and so on, okay? But we can call them Joseph and Matthias, or Barsabas and Matthias. They, the apostles, the other eleven, prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, including the heart of Barsabas and the heart of Matthias, you know them far better than we do, though we know them well ourselves, since they've been companying with us all this time. Oh, they know you. They're witnesses of your resurrection. But you know them better than we possibly could. So, with that in mind, thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. You see what these apostles are seeking? the will of God. We are not trying to make up your mind here. We're trying to come to know thy mind and thy will. We're not deciding based on which of the ones hung out with us the longest and which one, whose company do we most like. No, this isn't personal preference we're seeking. We're seeking to know the will of God. So thou, Lord, you know, whom hast thou chosen? What, we're, what you're calling them into is huge. 
it's an apostleship, they say, but it's also a ministry. And who do you want to bear witness of your resurrection? Who do you want to assume the mantle of this ministry? Choice is yours. I've shared this story before, but it's the best one I know of in our dispensation of making it crystal clear that it's not personal preference. It is the will of God. And that's when Heber J. Grant called Melvin J. Ballard to be an apostle. If you remember the story, ever since uh, President Grant had been Elder Grant, junior member of the Quorum of the Twelve, every time a vacancy opened, he suggested the same name. Of someone that was amazing and had long accompanied with him in the work of the ministry, a close friend from solid family, you know, great leadership capabilities himself, but as others suggested names, and again, that seems to be what's happening here. Well, it could be, it could be Joseph, it could be Matthias. There's options. There are people that have accompanied with us, and we've gotten to know their hearts as best as we can through that interaction. They are witnesses. They have deep abiding testimonies of the risen Lord. And so picture the 11 apostles, plus the first presidency, picture them all suggesting names, but then presenting them to the Lord for confirmation. Who among all these, wherefore of these men, hast thou chosen? And every time it ended up being someone else. And the prophet, who finally, the, the senior apostle, who gave ultimate voice when all was said and done, then they pray together, receive that confirmation, and a new apostle is chosen. The bishopric has been passed. Okay? Well, as the years went on, and vacancy after vacancy after vacancy appeared and was then filled, it was always the same name that, El that Elder Grant suggested and, was, and, and did not see chosen. Until Elder Grant was then President Grant. And when there was another vacancy, and everyone suggesting names, sure enough, President Grant suggested the same name he'd been suggesting for years. And the other apostles probably thought, yeah, okay, we know who's going to be called, since it's President Grant that gets the final say. Well, no. Because as they prayed about it, President Grant said it became crystal clear that the Lord was calling not my best lifelong personal friend, but rather a relative stranger. And in the process, President Grant and his fellow apostles had it <laughs> clarified and confirmed to them, the Lord's in charge. It's his church. Peter wants to make sure it's that way. And so verse 26, they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And there we have it. We're back to twelve. Twelve apostles, 120 disciples, ten to one. Let's move forward and make it a hundred to one, and a thousand to one, and a million to one. And we're beyond that in our days. With the position taking priority over whatever person happens to occupy it. It's even interesting to think of the names. We've, we've seen others with the name Joseph, but the name Barsabas, uh, surnamed Justice, but take Barsabas, and the name itself means some possibilities. Uh, bar, like we saw with Bar Abbas, 
with sun, that's what bar means. But this isn't bar abbas, this is bar sabas. And this could simply mean the son of Saba or the son of Seba, depending on how you pronounce it. But if those are not just proper names, but more of a, a just a Hebrew word itself, then Barsabas could mean son of an oath or son of conversion. That's a beautiful name title. And to picture someone so committed, a son of this, I'm growing up within this covenant. I have taken it upon myself with full purpose of heart, and I will keep this oath. I will keep this covenant. It's a perfect person to suggest to the Lord as a possible servant and a possible apostle. And then the other, Matthias, what does his name mean? It means gift of God. And he was willing to offer his life as a gift to God. Both of these men, we don't know anything else about them. And some early Christians kind of came up with tradition and some tried to give some backstories to these two. But as far as scripture is concerned, we don't have any other detail but that these two somehow met the criteria of accompanying with the other apostles and being witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. So what did it come down to? The will of God. As he chose between a son of the covenant, and a gift from God, and simply revealed his will that the gift of God would be a gift from God to the church, as Matthias would now join the other eleven in bearing a special witness of the resurrection of Jesus. I love Acts chapter 1 as, in terms of the precedent that it sets. And a precedent that has been followed ever since in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. With that, turn to chapter 2 and the promise of that endowment of power. The promise of what Jesus gave when he breathed upon them is about to be fulfilled. Chapter 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. There again you see the importance of unity. If we're trying to establish Zion, after all, what's the Lord's definition of it? One heart, one mind, dwelling together in righteousness. No poor among them. We will see Zion begin to take shape in the chapters we study this week. And here they are, with one accord. It was their unity that helped open the heavens so that God could reveal the new apostle. What's he going to reveal now? As we're all together, all in one place, and on the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost is amazing. Penta, meaning five, Pentecost comes to, to mean 50. And it's 50 days after something. Now, in Christianity, we talk about Easter, and then 50 days later is the day of Pentecost. In Judaism, since Christianity emerges from Judaism, what's the Jewish equivalent of the Christian Easter? Well, it's the Jewish Passover. And what's the Jewish equivalent of the Christian Pentecost? It's the Jewish Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks. That's what it's called. 50 days comes from seven weeks. Seven days of seven, there's 49, and then add an extra day. And so those, those weeks have passed. And basically what has been happening during those weeks is the wheat has been growing. And now we're ready to harvest it. So Shavuot is a festival of, of, of harvest time. 
celebrating that God has provided for his people. It's not manna from heaven anymore. He did that in the wilderness. But now in our promised land, food is growing. And we might actually make it through another season. What I love about the symbolism here, though, based on what's about to happen at this day of Pentecost, oh, there will be a harvest. <laughs> you better believe it. A harvest unlike anything they've ever seen before. And the fruit that has been growing is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Ghost that is about to be shed upon all those assembled in one accord. It's the Spirit that will make you one. One in worship as they prayer and supplicate. Now one in worship as they feel together the Holy Ghost. There's something powerful about that kind of shared experience. You ever met somebody? Perfect stranger, but you hear their testimony and the Spirit confirms. And you realize the Spirit told them the same thing it told me. And you feel a connection to them. Welcome to Zion. Welcome to, to oneness. The at-one-ment of Christ is trying to accomplish that. One with God, but one with each other. Two great commandments. The cross bringing us all into its core. Well, with the spirit that's about to happen, there will be a harvest of spiritual gifts. There will be a chance of growing up in God so that God can harvest us. He will make us wheat rather than tares. And that's all that the Spirit is going to be doing with them. The other thing, by the way, that Shavuot, the festival of weeks, commemorates, is the giving of the law. If there was the Passover so that the Israelites could be freed, right? The death of the firstborn so the slaves could go free. And now they're on their journey into the wilderness. They've crossed the Red Sea. It takes a while that they get to Mount Sinai and receive the tablets of the law, that's another thing that the Jews are celebrating, commemorating, expressing gratitude for on this day of Pentecost. Well, um, again, imagine the apostles and what they're about to receive. Not a letter of the law, but a spirit of the law. Jesus, remember in the, the antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount? The law says such and such, but I say this instead. I'm not trying to destroy the law. I'm trying to fulfill it. I'm raising the bar. The law says don't kill. I say don't get angry. The law says don't commit adultery. I say don't look with lust. The law says love your friends. I say love your enemies. In the original Shavuot, I wrote strict commandments on stone. On the day of Pentecost, I will begin inscribing my law upon the fleshy tables of the heart. I hope they're soft. I hope you'll let me get my finger in to be able to write within you, to breathe upon you, to inspire you from within, to know what you should do in every circumstance, to say more than you know, like the psalmist did, to recognize realities in Scripture that you otherwise would have missed, like Peter just did. I need you to have the Spirit within you. And there's no better day to do it than the day of Pentecost. So there they are assembled. And in verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And again, in Hebrew, wind is the same word as breath and the same word as spirit. Remember the creation account in Genesis 1 when it's the Spirit moving upon the waters? 
in creation? Well, here's a new creation taking shape. And the wind is blowing upon the hearts of the disciples of Christ. The Spirit is moving upon their chaotic waters and calming them. Well, that rushing mighty wind blew in. The sound filled the room. It filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. This is a dramatic paradigm shift, a hinge point in the history of the fledgling Christian church. Christ, second member of the Godhead, is not physically present. Holy Ghost, third member of the Godhead, has come. And this breath upon the water, this fire, remember John will baptize you with water, Someone else is coming who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Ghost. Water cleanses, but fire purifies in an even more dramatic way. And so these cloven tongues of fire, cloven just means kind of cut, cut in half, parting. So picture the, the fire flickering, not just one candle flame, but Oh, a fire beginning to burst forth upon them all. Wasn't there fire during the Exodus as well? Sometime between Passover and Shavuot. Fire that protected the people as they prepared to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. Oh, there's a baptism of water and of spirit of sorts all taking place among the Israelites as they head toward their promised land. Same thing happening here, or at least a similar thing. For them to feel this, to have this cleansing, this calming, but then this, this gift being, being shed forth, not just the gift of the Holy Ghost, but a gift of the Spirit that came right along with it, namely in this case, the gift of tongues. As they speak in tongues that they didn't know themselves, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Often when we speak for God, we know that we're still speaking ourselves. And we're doing the very best we can to try to say to someone what the Lord would have them hear. But there are other times where the Spirit is so strong, it confirms in the very moment, these are not my words. I know they're not. This is the Holy Ghost giving me utterance and to recognize the, the reality of that. God speaking through his servants, this is incredible. And those, those, that language, that utterance, is the part that the other person will best understand, most deeply understand. Because it's coming to them in ways that can't be conveyed by mere mortals. There's a resonance there. You see that in what's happening next. Verse 5 and 6. There were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. This is Pentecost. This is a, a feast. So you have the diaspora coming in. You have devout worshipers coming in from all over the known world. Now, when this was noised abroad, 
what, what's happening here? What, this, something, this mighty wind, the sound of it all, the, the, the cloven tongues of fire, people saying things that I know aren't coming from those people. Yeah, that word's going to spread like wildfire. It's going to be blown about like the wind. Well, it's noised abroad and the multitude came together. You sense a gathering of scattered Israel taking place right there on this initial day of Pentecost? From all nations coming together, brought there by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. And now that they're together, they were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now, there is a technical term for the, speak, for the speaking of tongues called glossolalia. Kind of a fun word to say. Add it to your vocabulary. Glossolalia, however, is typically referring to some kind of a tongue, a speaking in a tongue that no one knows, which therefore requires a complementary gift in the interpretation of tongues. It is so obviously miraculous when that happens in because it's those were words i didn't know what was coming out of my mouth because they're unintelligible unless someone else with the corresponding gift makes them intelligible and reveals what i said now do we believe in that kind of the gift of tongues we do it, what is it the seventh article of faith that we believe in visions and revelation and prophecy and the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues and so forth. We believe in spiritual gifts. That's part of the fruit that is growing for the day of harvest on Pentecost. Uh, Joseph Smith described Brigham Young as having spoken in tongues. Many of the early saints, both male and female, exercised that spiritual gift. Paul will talk about it at length when he writes his first letter to the Corinthians. And so we'll talk more about that manifestation of glossolalia then. But this initial oh, evidence of it, this initial manifestation, was in some ways more practical because it gave people, foreigners, devout people from all nations, a chance to hear the gospel, the good news preached, in their own tongue. This was like instant Google Translate. <laughs> and everyone pulls out their phone and Peter and J James and John and others are bearing witness of things and all of a sudden it's making sense to everyone who hears them. In fact, they're hearing it in their own language and it's a, a miracle that blows them all away. This is <laughs> miraculous news being shared miraculously seems fitting right when i taught at the mtc i saw this manifestation of the gift of tongues frequently in the mission field those who serve in foreign cultures or foreign countries or simply in a foreign language i imagine you prayed hard for the gift of tongues and saw it come to you I, although I will say this, what I taught at the MTC, I, every district, especially the ones that struggled the most, the more they struggled, the harder they prayed for the gift of tongues. And please, Heavenly Father, help me learn this language so that people will understand me. Give me utterance in a way that's intelligible, please. I remember one particular district, though. There was this program called SYL, Speak Your Language, and your mission language, not your native one. So for me, I taught them Spanish. I didn't want to hear them speak English. 
uh, from about after the first or second day, it was like, okay, English is dead. Inglés está muerto. De hoy en adelante solamente estamos hablando español. Okay, from here on out, it's only Spanish. And they're like, what? I don't know. Uh, no, sabo español? No, mm. yeah, that's for sure. You really don't. Uh, no sé español for future reference. Uh, you don't know it. That, that's fine. You're going to practice. And you're going to use a lot of... You ever play Pictionary? Yeah, try that again. Ever done charades? Well, you'll get a lot of exercise. Work circumlocution. We'll talk around it and use whatever vocabulary you can. You're a baby again. And you had no other option than learn your native tongue by trial and error. So go try and go err and get better. And they try and they erred, but they did get better. But I do remember one particular group that really struggled with SYL. They just, they, they tried and then as soon as it got hard, they'd revert back to English because it was easy and I'm trying to get to know my companion and it's just hard enough anyway not to be able to communicate with somebody and blah, blah, blah. And they were not making much progress as a result. And I remember on one particular day after they prayed, please, Heavenly Father, bless us with the gift of tongues. Por favor, el don de lenguas, <laughs> in their sweet gringo accents. Afterwards, I, we all got up off our knees and I said, elders and sisters, please don't take this in the wrong way. But I don't want to hear you, I don't want to hear you praying for the gift of tongues anymore. Because you're not asking for the gift of work. You want to pray for a gift, pray for that one. Pray for the gift of work. Pray for the, the desire to, to do the harder thing and not slip into English just because it's the path of least resistance. There will be people in the mission field without the gift of interpretation of tongues. Don't rely on them to be able to, to receive the spiritual gifts to understand you. You better work for the spiritual gift to be able to communicate in a way that they can understand. So please work hard. Please try. And the Lord will be with you. And He was. Gifts of work coupled with the gift of tongues, you can't go wrong. And that I saw that in district after district after district. Well, among these, no MTC needed. The miracle was taking place through the power of the Holy Ghost. And in verse 7 and 8, they were all amazed. They marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And I wonder if there's kind of a almost a Nathaniel-esque sort of, can any good thing come from Galilee? Because Galilee is like ugh, country bumpkins up there up north. They're just a bunch of fishermen. and it, it, No, here in the, the thriving metropolis of Jerusalem, surely there are people so educated that they will be multilingual. But these guys? Remember when the, the maid recognized Peter's accent outside Caiaphas' palace? And like, you got to be a follower of Jesus. You're a Galilean too. Oh, to all my cherished friends from the South, I miss your accent. But it's recognizable. And so would a Galilean accent have been. And they're thinking, there's no way they could speak this. No wonder they're amazed. No wonder they're marveling. And what are they marveling at? How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? How is this humanly possible? Well, that's the thing. It's not humanly possible. 
But with God, all things are possible. So this is divine. Because of the Spirit that has been shed forth upon them, they are being raised above their normal level. The Spirit elevates us to enable us to do things we could not do on our own. To say things that we would never otherwise say. To reveal things we don't already know. That's one of my favorite experiences with the Holy Ghost. And I'm so grateful whenever the Spirit gives me utterance, despite my Galilean roots. People who know me and... Yeah, that definitely wasn't you. You're not, you can't do that. Whenever we are amazed and marvel, it's because of the manifestation of God. And as we see here, who's it for? It's for others. It's not for us. This was not a chance for the apostles to, to prove their intelligence with their, their grasp of so many foreign languages. No, God was using them to bless the gathered multitudes. And to do that, they're going to have to hear the gospel in their own tongue. I can make that happen. And so he does. And who are they? I love the list in verse 9 through 11. Half of these, I don't even know where they're from. But I guess Peter, James, and John would have. They were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, Simon would have been stoked about that, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. That's a long list. There's a, an ancient geography lesson, if you ever want to take one. I guess we could have just skipped over it and summarized it briefly and just said, yeah, oh yeah, people from all over the, the world were hearing things. So what it said earlier, right? Devout men from out of all nations under heaven. But I love the fact that he was so specific because it's recognizing the worth of individual souls. Where are you from? Oh, Crete. Wow, and you understood me? So good to meet you. What about you? Oh, Phrygia. What? I never heard of that. Don't worry about it. That's where I'm from. But how on earth could you speak in a way that I can understand? Next to the Egyptian and the Libyan and the Ethiopian and the stranger and... What a miracle. There was actually a talk Elder Irene gave years and years ago describing what happened years and years before for him. If I remember correctly, he was in a district presidency in Massachusetts during his Harvard years as a student. And he talked about just driving around through the towns of New England, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to build the kingdom. And he listed a bunch of oh, little country hamlets there in New England. And he even said, I know that the, the names of those towns and villages don't mean anything to you. But they came to mean everything to me. As I began to see God's hand at work on these individuals, wherever they might be found. I do love the list. Because maybe he'd say, Oceanside, where I was born. Or Valencia, where I grew up. Or Wasilla, Alaska, where I just got to do some firesides and meet some incredible saints. 
God knows his children in every nation under heaven and wants them, us, to learn the gospel in our own language so it can be native-born. It can feel like it's a part of us. He wants us to learn languages so that we can share the gospel. He wants things translated into every tongue. And nobody does that more than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's amazing to see it done. And it requires work. It requires spirit. Faith and works together. And we, we are evidence of God wanting... In some ways, we're evidence of God wanting to reverse the Tower of Babel. Back in... Babel, or Babel, as it might be pronounced. Let's build a tower, a shortcut to heaven. The Lord's like, oh, I want you to come, <laughs> but not that way. And so he confounds the languages. Because if, it's one, if there's one thing that dissolves unity, it's the inability to communicate. Have you ever had that struggle with someone you don't speak the same language and you just can't see it eye to eye? You can't accomplish something together? And so what I love about Pentecost it's, a, it's the reversal of, of Babel. And w if we're seeking Zion, one heart, one mind, then communication's key. I had, in my ancestors that joined the church in northern Italy, it, Italian was kind of the language they used for certain things, but French was kind of more their historical linguistic background. And then they spoke some kind of almost combination local dialect called Piedmontese. And one of the one of the English-speaking missionaries that was called to serve in those Alpine valleys, in one of his letters home, he, he literally complained about the Tower of Babel. He's like, Italian and French and Piedmontese, I don't, hmm, curse you, Tower of Babel. How on earth am I going to share the gospel if I can't speak all these languages, if I can't communicate with my brothers and sisters here? No wonder they tried so hard, worked so hard, prayed so hard, and had the Spirit bless them along those lines. We ought to be doing the same. We are gathering Zion. We are gathering or gathering Israel to Zion, trying to make the world one. And we're seeing it happen right there. Now, there's different reactions to this miracle, as is typical. And in verse 12, here's a few possibilities. They were all amazed so, I mean, how could you not be? It's like, what is happening here? They were all amazed and were in doubt. So they're not sure what to make of it. Saying one to another, what meaneth this? Now, those ones are just confused and a little bit doubtful, but maybe not doubting in terms of, I'm skeptical. No, I'm seeing something happen. I just don't know what it is. But others were a little more sure of themselves. But notice how they misjudged. Others mocking said, oh, these men are full of new wine. You see what they're chalking it up to? Maybe they're thinking this is glossolalia, that this is some kind of unknown tongue. I don't know what they're saying. This, they must be drunk. These, these quote-unquote apostles oh, had a little too much wine post-last supper, and they've been drinking it. And so they're saying something, and somebody's thinking. Maybe everybody's drunk. And there's this shared communication over the bottle, and somebody's saying something, somebody thinks they understand, and, but nothing, nothing really is happening here. Now, be careful. You are completely misunderstanding and misinterpreting the experience. Of these two groups, I'd far rather be the first one. I still don't know what's going on. But I'll just pause judgment, postpone judgment, and ask, what meaneth this? I'm not going to 
conclude anything. This is an and, and this is an agnostic instead of an atheist. Someone who says, yeah, I don't know. As opposed to the atheist who says, oh, I do know. This is the dogmatist versus the mere doubter. Yeah, and, I, and I see this all the time in those who attack the church. A new dogmatism to replace their old one. And the church is false, and, and then they mock it, as was said here. And that's maybe not new wine, since Latter-day Saints tend to avoid that. But it's, well, it's still man-made. And, he, and they mock the, the man-made things within the, the, the gospel. As opposed to those that, well, I am ignorant, but not opposed. I, I don't know either way. So I'll just wait and wonder. But then Peter comes to the rescue. <laughs> Verse 14. But Peter, chief apostle, distinguished from the others yet again, standing up with the eleven, so we've got the full quorum of the twelve, Matthias, so glad to have you on board. Peter lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Those are the first two concentric circles that Jesus told us about. <laughs> okay, You're from here, here's Jerusalem, here's the people of Judea, and yet... Oh, the circles are going to ripple out far faster than I thought because there are people from all nations under heaven that seem to be here. Mm, the Lord is, is allowing the process to go forth far quicker than I imagined. Well, all ye men, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. So don't just understand it. Get ready to act on it. Let it be known, but also get ready to hearken. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose. Quit trying to reduce this to the absurd. Quit, quit, quit trying to introduce a little comic relief to hide your ignorance or opposition. We are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. I mean, it's 9 a.m. for crying out loud. This is way too early in the morning to be drunk. There's got to be a better explanation. And so what does Peter do? Well, he turns to Scripture just like he did in chapter 1, to solve the dilemma of this vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve. What about this one? How do I explain what has just happened here? Because wine does not deserve any credit, believe me. What does? Verse 16 through 18, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He knows his Psalms, now he knows his minor prophets. Okay, From wisdom literature to prophetic literature, this is what Joel said. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And that's what's been happening. God has been pouring out upon us his spirit, just as Jesus promised, oh, about 50 days ago. It's come. We tarried behind in Jerusalem for this miracle to take place, and it has. It's not just that Jesus prophesied of it 50 days ago, it's that Joel prophesied of it hundreds of years ago. That there would come a day, some latter day, some day in the future, when the Spirit of God would be poured out, and poured out on anyone and everyone worthy of it. Notice he re the Spirit reaches across gender divides as he speaks of sons and daughters, servants and handmaidens. 
it reaches across the age divide. You don't have to be a certain age to finally qualify to have the Holy Ghost help you. So when he speaks of young men having visions and old men dreaming dreams, I actually love how those two phrases relate to the Smith family because Joseph Jr. was a young man having visions and Joseph Sr. was an old man having dreaming dreams. But it's not just for them. It's for anyone the Lord has called. There's not some kind of class issue where you have to be the high and mighty because no, servants and handmaidens Anyone worthy of the presence of the Spirit can receive these spiritual gifts and prophesy as a result. The Holy Ghost is the great equalizer and the great elevator as it lifts us above our mere mortality, giving us gifts far beyond what we deserve. Now that's what Joel promised, but he promised even more than that. And this puts it into an even greater temporal context. Verse 19 through 21. Joel continues, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the irony there, as Peter is quoting Joel, the first half of this quotation seemed tailor-made for the moment there on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit's being, being shed forth upon everyone here, tailor-making it down to their own native tongue. But then he keeps on quoting. In some ways, if I were Peter, I probably would have stopped right then about prophesying, because that's, that's what happened, gift of the Spirit. But then he keeps going and starts talking about Wonders in heaven, signs on earth, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun darkened. Seriously? The great and notable day of the Lord? This is the same Peter who must have been paying close attention on the Mount of Olives when Jesus began teaching about the signs of the times before the second coming. Now, Peter would have known this isn't the second coming. The angels clarified that. Okay, the times and seasons are not yet here. We got work to do. But for him to understand the big picture. Now, some of this is more proximate. Uh, the coming of Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Oh, there'd be fire and blood and vapor of smoke. Will you be prepared for it? Will you have the gift of the Spirit to help you know when to flee and join the other saints gathered in Pella for safety? The the Christians largely avoided the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, and it would have been the Spirit that helped them. But also, when he speaks of the last days, if that destruction was just a preview, then the ultimate fulfillment, a day when the sun is darkened and the moon turned to blood, will we have the Holy Ghost to help us navigate it? That's absolutely essential. It's interesting because right after 9-11, 2001, when the Twin Towers came crashing down and so did our sense of confidence, our, our sense of security, one month later was October General Conference. And Gordon B. Hinckley took the stand, gave an incredible talk to try to reassure us and comfort us that this was nothing new. 
This was simply the war in heaven transferred to an ongoing war on earth. But then he quoted Joel chapter 2 and spoke of blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Spoke of the fulfillment of these prophecies. In fact, said, these prophecies stand fulfilled. I remember there were all kinds of people at that time that like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we like right on the cusp of the second coming then? President Hinckley, the prophet said, it's Joel is fulfilled. Check the box. Calm down. Peter said the same thing 2,000 years before. Okay? There's still some time to prepare, and there's still a lot of work remaining. If you remember our study of Isaiah last year, there was an Isaiah layer cake where it's the same shape, but you keep stacking them. It's the same prophecy with multiple fulfillments. And so the book of Joel has multiple fulfillments. And Peter saw it being fulfilled in his day, and President Hinckley saw it being fulfilled in his, ours. Will there yet be more? Most likely. But the one constant throughout it all is the need for the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. I love that Peter doesn't just quote the part from Joel that speaks of the Spirit, but keeps quoting so we know just how essential the Spirit's companionship will be. No wonder President Nelson, not even needing Joel's help on this, has been so emphatic that we learn to listen, that we understand how to hear him, that we qualify ourselves for personal revelation, because that will be required for us to make it through our days, our notable days of the Lord as they come. And then notice what Peter does. He knows he has the, the focused attention of everyone present. I'm not drunk. Let me prove it. Let me teach some truth here. And while you're marveling and wondering, standing there amazed, let me tell you some more things to, be, to, be, to marvel about, to be amazed over. Verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. As quickly as he could, he gets to this name, this figure that he missed, that he loved, that he would do anything for. This is the focus of his witness. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. You hear Peter giving God the credit for everything Jesus did? Just like Jesus gave God the credit for all that he had done. Hold on to that, because we're going to see Peter do that over and over and over. Of This is not passing the buck. This is shining the light on its real source. This is giving credit where credit is due. And he's a master of it. Keep it in mind. Now he goes on. As ye yourselves also know, you know this. You know God approved Jesus. You know who he was. He repeatedly testified of that. It reminds me of Amulek in the Book of Mormon when he's crying repentance to the wicked. And he says, I know you know this stuff. It was abundantly taught to you, bountifully taught, before your departure, before your apostasy. So, of course, you know this. And Peter's saying the same to his fellow Jews. But, why, if you know, then why didn't you know? Why didn't you act? Why didn't you hearken and heed? Listen to what he says next. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So all this was part of God's plan. The crucifixion didn't frustrate anything. It fulfilled everything. 
So this was God's determinant counsel. This was his foreknowledge. This has not shaken my faith. Jesus told us that too. Everything that's about to happen has been prophesied before. And I need you to know in advance so you can handle this. So we're handling it. Are you? So him, Jesus, ye have taken. And the ye there is pointed. It's personal. It's second person plural pronoun. It's y'all. Or even better, all y'all, as my fellow Southerners would say. Ye have taken him, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, it doesn't stop there. That's the bad news, but that's only Friday. And remember, Sunday always comes. So what about the good news? He keeps going. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the bands of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Us speaking in tongues that everyone can understand. Yeah, that's not possible either. But God specializes in making the impossible possible. I mean, he conquered death. Conquering linguistic confusion is nothing. Do you see what Peter is doing here? He's trying, he's preaching. He's sharing the good news. Even the bad news part of it, crucifixion but ending with resurrection. He's a witness of that. I know it. God raised him up. How could he not? Death could not hold him. And you won't be able to hold me back from bearing that testimony. He's letting it fly. It's amazing. And then Peter quotes more scripture. We have seen him quote more scripture in the last, oh, I don't know, dozen verses than he quotes in the entire Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This chief apostle has changed. And he's not just oh, calling the shots by his own authority. No, he's going back and basing all that he can in scripture. And this one, going back to the Psalms, verse 25 through 28, he says, For David speaketh concerning him concerning Jesus. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. That's how David could hold steady. That's how he remained truly unshaken. That's how we all can be, despite the blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Okay, Holding on to Christ. So he could not be moved. Therefore, David goes on, did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Or the JST, you will not leave my soul in prison. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That body will not be dead long enough to decay. Oh no. It will rise. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, David said. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now that's all the 16th Psalm. And Peter knew that one too. He turned to it to make sense of what happened to Jesus. I love what Peter's doing here. I know Jesus said it would be this way with Judas. But what are we supposed to do about Oh, I guess here's a clue. I know Jesus said he'd have to be crucified. 
He also said he'd rise again the third day. And as I tried to make sense of all of those, was it a parable? It's I, my understanding what hadn't quite caught up. It was scripture that, that got me there. And again, beautiful passage from the 16th Psalm of Christ triumphant over death. Of not being left in hell or in prison, but breaking those bands and rising. Talk about the ways of life. He was the way and the truth and the life. And he showed that his way of life was an eternal one. And no wonder joy came. Joy with thy countenance. Oh yes, we saw it. It wasn't just the nail marks in hand and feet that convinced us that Christ had returned. It was the joy on his countenance. And the joy that was unmistakable on ours. Now, if that's the scripture that Peter is quoting, then he turns and begins to explain it a little bit more. And that's important too. This scripture made sense to me. Is it making sense to you? If not, let me help you. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So we know that, okay? David's day has passed, but he said more than he knew. Again, it would have been through the Spirit. Therefore, Peter explains, being a prophet, David that is, okay, there's these messianic prophecies in in his hymn book, in the Psalms that he wrote, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, so, so a descendant of David, the Davidic monarchy would be restored. Somewhere through the fruit of his loins, he would raise up Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of David Himself. He would raise up Christ to sit on His throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that His soul was not left in hell, neither His flesh did see corruption. Do you get it, men and brethren? Am I speaking freely enough to you? I mean, believe me, don't, don't, don't take this, don't, don't, don't beat yourself up over your ignorance. I was ignorant too. I went, I went to synagogue as a kid too. I don't know how many times we read the 16th Psalm. And I always missed it too, until I saw it fulfilled. <laughs> believe me, you want a new experience? Go back and reread the Old Testament, my friends. For the first time in your life, it'll feel a little old. <laughs> Oh, the Hebrew Bible will now become the Christian covenant. And you'll see prophecy after prophecy that the Christ would come. And he has. Everything, go back and read. It's a brand new book. And he's explaining it all. This is so beautiful. Jesus is still the Messiah. He said that before. We testified of that before. I know it seemed like That messianic train derailed. I know at least in your eyes, you probably thought, well, I guess we got our hopes up for no reason because the one we thought, in fact, remember last week when we were studying the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they kept speaking in the past tense? Bummer. We really, we really thought he would be the Messiah, that he would have been the one to free us. But oh, well, he's gone. And here, people that probably are 
suffering from similar misunderstandings, Peter is trying to speak as freely as possible. Christ's mission was to conquer death, not Rome. And he did. He broke the chains that really matter and freed us from the only kind of death we really ought to fear. Just like David said he would. The Davidic monarchy is alive and well. Who cares if Pilate is on the local throne or Caesar on the big one back in Rome? Christ has taken his place on the throne of heaven. And we're witnesses of that. So verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. That's what apostles are. Special witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Witnesses of his name to all nations. And I'm bearing witness of that name right now. God raised Jesus. We're witnesses of that. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, which we just had fulfilled in us, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. God is giving us exactly what he promised. And now for another scripture. Let's just keep going from where we started before. Verse 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, for he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. So he just jumped from the 16th Psalm to the 110th, and he quoted the first verse. Christ will rise above every enemy. His foes will be his footstool. I just saw those feet. They were beautiful upon the mountains, scarred and all. But he's rising above every enemy. And he's even inviting us to join him, to sit on his right hand. But how do we come into that companionship? Look at verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter didn't sugarcoat that at all. He called them out for their wickedness. Just like Jesus had called Peter out for his. This night you will be you will deny me thrice before the cock crows twice. I looked at him through the colonnade and saw Peter's bitter tears. No, ye, y'all, all y'all have crucified Jesus. And that was the Lord. He still is the Lord. That was the Christ. He still is. We're witnesses of that resurrection. And he has conquered everything he said he would. This was not a failed messianic mission. And we are not holding on to false messianic hopes. It's still him. And we will follow him. Now notice their reaction. Verse 37 is incredible. It's a huge pivot point for them, for his audience. Now, when they heard this, hard as it was, hard for them to hear, godly sorrow, is it beginning to work within them? Have they come to recognize? Yeah, we did know, we did believe, but we abandoned him, we betrayed, we denied, we had him crucified. And when they heard all this, they were pricked in their heart. Oh, this, this hurts. And yet somehow I think it's supposed to. They were pricked and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, one of the best questions you could ever ask a servant of the Lord. Men and brethren, 
what shall we do? That is the question. You're right. We blew it. We missed the Messiah when he was right here among us. What do we do now? What shall we do? Is there any way to make up for it? Any way to go back and clean up our messes? What kind of restitution can we possibly make when he's gone? And it's partly our fault. I am so grateful for a heart within them that was soft enough to be pricked. We'll see what happens with harder hearts a little bit later on. But for these ones, a pricked heart, how do I make up for my betrayal or my denial? Peter would have some personal things to say about that. How do I make up for my wickedness or my rebellion? What shall I do when it seems like everything's too late? Well, it's not. Peter knows that personally also. And so in verse 38, here's his solution. Then Peter said unto them, repent. That's what we do. And make it a lifetime of repentance. Repent unto baptism, as other scriptures would say. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, including your sins against him. If you'll do that, then what will come? Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Believe me, we just experienced it ourselves. How, what, what shall we do? You live the doctrine of Christ. If you rejected the gospel of Christ when it was first presented, don't worry, it's still good news. And the gospel of Christ is, finds its, its shape in the doctrine of Christ, which is the fourth article of faith, which is the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Now, did you notice they skipped one? Peter mentioned three out of the four. He said, repent. He said, be baptized. He said, promise the, receive, the receiving of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Which did he miss? Well, he didn't miss it at all. The first principle of the gospel, prior to repentance, what pushes us in the direction of change, is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had it, but he's recognizing that something is starting to work within them as well. What shall we do? I think you're right. If he has manifested himself unto you with many infallible proofs, if he conquered death, if the crucifixion itself was part of God's master plan, and he's freeing us from an enemy far superior to Rome, that, that's him? This, this is the messianic age? We can be part of this coming kingdom? <laughs> I want to, but what do I do? How do I change? There's something beautiful about having faith well up within us and then just looking around, scrambling, wanting to know, what do I do about it? How can I give expression to the feelings within? <laughs> Men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh, act on it. Faith unto repentance. Repentance unto baptism. Baptism by water followed by baptism in by fire and the Holy Ghost, and the Spirit will tell you what to do from there. <laughs> Enduring to the end has the Spirit carrying you from here on through everything. That's what you do, brethren. It's not too late for anyone. This is such a glorious moment. And Peter doesn't even stop there. He keeps going. Verse 39, for the promise 
And that's what covenants are all about. The doctrine of Christ is your way to pass into these promises. But God oh, is making incredible promises in return. And this is what this one is. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. How provided they answer the call, that is. As long as they listen and heed his invitation to repent and make covenants with him, then the promises are theirs as well. Everyone. No wonder we needed to gather everyone in on this feast and festival day. And then how, give them an opportunity for true conversion. Have them realize that the blessings of heaven are extended to all of them and they come in and receive it and then they go home and bring it home with them. This is not just a drop in the bucket and a natural ripple effect. This is an explosion with eternal consequences. It's incredible what is happening here. And to see the promises extended to all people. And in some ways, the best part of it is not just some kind of global geography, but a personal promise. Because did you catch what the way he said it? This promise is unto you. The same y'all that he referred to earlier with that bad news. The same group that, that was guilty of Christ's crucifixion could now be made clean by the crucifixion's consequences. Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, the promise is unto you and to your children. I remember it dawning on me once. Remember when Pilate is saying, I'm, well, he's washing his hands, he says, I'm clear from the blood of this innocent person, this just man. And what did the gathered Jews say to him? Fine, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Ouch. When we studied that a few weeks ago, I let you know that unfortunately that verse has been justification for a lot of anti-Semitism ever since. I wish those who rested that scripture to rationalize their own intolerance knew the book of Acts as well as they knew that previous passage. Because if they were saying that Christ's blood will be upon us and our children, then Peter was promising them, as soon as you repent, the promise is on you and on your children. Please keep these two verses connected closely. The promise is for all of them, all of us as well. Now with that, Peter's sermon has concluded, at least as much as we have recorded. Because verse 40, with many other words did he testify and exhort. In fact, he probably included many other scriptures as well, many other insights, many other witnesses of the resurrection. Notice he's testifying and exhorting. Powerful combination. I think sometimes we only testify and we don't exhort. And that's insufficient. We need to confirm truth and provide direction. We need to help them feel something. That's the testimony. But then encourage them to do something about it. That's the exhortation. Otherwise, we're just kind of pumping them up and then not telling them what to do with it all. And so we need both testimony and exhortation. And notice what his exhortation includes. Saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. 
or more accurately, come unto Christ so he can save you from it. And they take him up on that offer. That's the miracle of this day of Pentecost. Not just that the Lord sent the Spirit, but that the Spirit changed hearts, even previously hardened ones. They were pricked and they changed. And then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, so no hesitation on their part. It's like, go damn the river, okay? Let's go find some water as quickly as we can. The same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. How's that for a day of missionary work? <laughs> this is how the kingdom of God begins to grow. You teach truth. You testify of it. You engender faith in those around you. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ had come to fulfill prophecy, to keep promises, to do all that God had asked of him. And when we fall short of doing the same ourselves, we can always repent. We can make a covenant to live a life of repentance. That's what baptism is for. As a missionary myself, I loved teaching Acts chapter 2 to people. As soon as they were starting to feel the reality of our message, to help them, to give them words to use, to give them a phrase that would express what they were feeling, to show them <laughs> Acts chapter 2 and say, does this sound like what you're experiencing right now? <laughs> Men and brethren, elders or sisters, what shall I do? I've been reading the Book of Mormon and feeling its power. I've been coming to church and meeting incredible saints. I, I just met you, but there's something happening in my heart that I've never felt before. What am I supposed to do about this? Oh, we thought you'd never ask. Here's the plan. Here's the process. Here's what you can do. And, and the kingdom extends its borders. The the tent begins to spread as cords are lengthened and stakes are strengthened and Zion comes into existence. It's all happening right here and we've been doing it ever since the restoration began. Now if that's the beginning, notice the next steps. Verse 42, and they these 3,000 souls that just joined the, I mean, to go from 120 in that upper room, and then all these people who have come in for the day of Pentecost, and people from all over, nations under heaven, but then adding the 3,000, all they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which is better described as Christ's doctrine. That's what the apostles were teaching, right? First principles and ordinance of the gospel, the doctrine of Christ. These converts continued in it. They were steadfast in it. This was not in one day and out the next. No, they were, they were going to follow the gospel for good. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what they taught. And fellowship. That's how they lived. So this includes both the intellectual, the doctrinal, and the social the fellowship side of things. First great commandment, second great commandment. They're doing it all. So they're continuing in those ways and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So you see worship helping them become one. You see ordinances. You see the renewing of covenants. This is true communion, both with God above and with fellow disciples beyond. 
And fear, which we would term reverence, awe, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Oh, the same kinds of wonders, the same kinds of signs that Jesus had performed during his mortal ministry, the apostles were now performing in theirs. He told them it would be that way. And so it is. This is what Zion is all about. And so verse 44, All that believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. They're living the law of consecration already? Remember Zion's definition. One heart, one mind. Are you seeing this coming together in one accord? Are you seeing this speaking the same spiritual language? Regardless of whatever their native tongue might be? Coming together into a full understanding. That's the unity of the faith. That's the oneness. But also dwelling in righteousness. They just covenanted they would. They repented. They were baptized. And no poor among them. That is sometimes the hardest criteria of all to meet. But that's what helps maintain the unity. That's the fruit of our dwelling in righteousness. It's wanting to bless the least of these, my brethren, and do it unto others as we have been doing unto Christ. Yeah, you understand this? It's incredible. You remember the rich young ruler who comes? I've been keeping commandments my whole life. What lack I yet? Well, consecration. Obedience needs to grow into sacrifice. Sell what you have and give to the poor so you can fully follow me. And though that man couldn't and went away sorrowing as a result. Remember Peter was saying, well, we've done all of that. What do we get? Hmm, Peter, Simon, you've still got some growing up to do. Peter's no longer asking what's in it for me. But neither are these converts. It's what can I contribute to others? Well, welcome to Zion. Welcome to the kingdom of God. We have 3,000 rich young rulers who were able to make the ultimate sacrifice. And they, verse 46... Continuing daily, continuing, there's being persistent. Daily, there's being consistent. With one accord, there's the unity. In the temple, that's the place where Luke always seems to focus his attention. His gospel ended at the temple. His next book, Acts, is beginning at the temple. Breaking bread from house to house. To eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Gladness, there's the joy. Singleness, there's the focus. It's not some kind of joyfulness that's just anarchy. And it's not some kind of focus that is glum. No, this is gladness and singleness of heart. And what do they do with it? They're praising God. There's the vertical component. And having favor with all the people, that's the horizontal component. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Oh, it wasn't just those initial 3,000. Can you sense the impending avalanche? As the stone cut out of the mountain without hands is rolling forth to fill the earth? It's beginning. 
It's the new creation. It's the voice upon the waters. It's the rushing mighty wind. It's new Adams and new Eves. It's apostles and disciples. Devout men and self-sacrificing women. It's Medes and Phrygians and this is how it all began. This is the day of Pentecost. This is Christianity coming forth. When I was in Israel as a Jerusalem Center student, we had people from the community come and speak to us almost every week in kind of these forums. Amazing opportunities to learn from some local leaders. And we had people from high up in the Palestinian Liberation Organization and scholars from from Hebrew U, which is amazing. But one day a man came who was an Arab Christian. And he talked about what it's like. I mean, in some ways, Arab Christian, isn't that an oxymoron? Isn't that a, a, a confusion of terms? If you're Arab, you're Muslim, right? And that was kind of our clueless assumption coming into things. We're like, oh, you must have converted. That's so interesting. That's amazing. Tell us your conversion story. And this amazing leader of Arab Christians in Jerusalem, <laughs> he was nice about it, but I imagine he was probably disappointed. Like, really? I'm the oddity? I'm older than you. And I don't just mean personally. I mean historically. And he pointed us to Acts chapter 2, which we've just finished studying, and pointed out among all the places that we flew through, many of which, well, I don't even know where they are, it specifically listed Arabs there. People from the Arabian Peninsula that had made their way into Jerusalem for a feast day. And there they hear the, the, the gospel preached in their own native Arabian tongue. They heed the call to repent and be baptized. They receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They begin consecrating their all. They probably go back to Arabia to establish a, a further outpost of the kingdom and begin continuing to share the gospel there. What was amazing was to see in this good Christian brother, oh, an old, old identity and a history that tied him in the day of Pentecost, to Peter himself. It's amazing to me to think of the long history of Arabian Christianity, to think of the long history that we are partakers of and inheritors. It's part of our grand inheritance. As we turn the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3, please do not lose sight of what just started. The kingdom of God rolling forth. On the, on the wings of witness, testimonies of Jesus Christ from living apostles that are ready to give all that they have for the kingdom of God. Chapter 3 of Acts then begins with a bang. Chapter 2 ended gloriously, right? Uh, 3,000 converts and then adding daily more and more people. Signs and wonders confirming the truth of what Peter and James and John and others are teaching. Incredible things taking place. But typically, as when, when something's growing, then opposition grows right alongside it. 
We're going to see a lot of that in this second half of this week's lesson. Uh, as we study chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, pay attention to what is happening with Peter, what is happening with the fledgling faith, the, the church as it's growing, but also as they're facing increasing opposition. And will, will he respond as a Simon? Or will he stand firm as a Peter? Will he be a rock? Well, I think you know the answer. But go to Acts chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and a glorious story unfolds. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. So this would be about 3 p.m. Okay, it's a time of sacrifice and worship and prayer. In some ways, it's beautiful to have a set time where you're going to do sacred things. I hope it doesn't become so... Oh, methodical that we lose sight of its power, but there's going to be some power here that they're not going to lose sight of. They come to the temple. Again, a major focal point for Luke in both the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. They're engaged in this sacred act and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. You understand what's going on here? In some ways, this is the apostolic equivalent of what happened back in the book of John with Jesus at the temple and seeing a man that was born in a difficult condition. With Jesus, it was the man born blind. With Peter and John, it is the man born lame, lame from his mother's womb. Both of these stories will unfold at the temple. For Peter and this lame man, it is a gate called beautiful. And it's about to get more beautiful than it ever had before, especially for this lame man. He was carried. He was laid. So he either had some good friends, kind of like those that lowered the man with the palsy down through the roof, or maybe just some people that took pity upon this poor suffering soul, who probably did something to deserve this, since suffering is evidence of sin, right? Well, Peter knows that that's not the case anymore. But he, they bring this man there and lay him there. Why? To ask alms. Because what better place than at the temple? Where people from widows with their mites to the wealthy with their riches will come to give things. It's an hour of worship. It's time for sacrifice. Do you have any sacrifice for me? I'm here to ask an alms. And you wonder... How many times had this man been through this? Lying there, unable to move himself, but just looking around anxiously, hoping for some kind of eye contact, because that's often when emotion starts working upon someone. If they could just see me in my condition and see me seeing them, that's the key. If eyes meet, then maybe hearts will too. And either out of a sense of compassion or even just mere guilt. Maybe they'll give me something. And that's what this man is hoping for. Now, pay attention to the eyes. That's why I brought it up in that way. If you've ever walked past someone that's homeless, and from a distance you see them with their sign, you can hear them as you approach asking for alms. What do you do with your eyes usually? Uh, most people I know of, and I'm guilty of this too often as well, try to avoid eye contact. 
We saw them. Oh, I'm glad they didn't see us seeing them. And now I know where to not put my eyes so I can walk right past them as if I'm unaware that they're there. With that in mind, keep reading. Verse 3 and 4. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. So, so far, it's his eyes. He's been scanning the crowd. He sees Peter and John. Doesn't know who they are, but they're coming up to the temple. They must be devout Jews, as we used that phrase before. They're here to offer something. It is the hour of prayer, after all. Surely they'll have something. And if their heart is turned to God, then perhaps their heart might be turned to their neighbor as well. So, seeing Peter and John... He asked an alms. And Peter, again, pay attention to the eyes, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. Now, I love this passage because of its focus on, on visual cues. Again, we've had enough experiences ourselves that we know what the eyes are doing. But then in this moment, it must have started with a man looking, scanning, viewing, seeing Peter and John. And then saying something to them, he asks an alms, and then Peter sees him. But more than see him, he really looks. I mean, the language is powerful. Fastening his eyes on him. Can you picture that? I mean, that that's, this sounds like a stare down. This isn't just a glance and, oh, we happen to make quick, brief eye contact, and then somebody broke it. But no, it's, hey, excuse me, uh, you, fellow worshiper. Oh, yeah. And then, boom, it is laser-focused, fastened his eye to the point, I mean, if you hoped for eye contact and then got, woo, way more of it than you thought, more than you hoped for, more than you bargained for, somebody in a stare-down usually looks away. Typically, it's the person that's whole that looks away from the person that is suffering. It just hurts. I don't want to see it. But in this case... The fact that Peter had to say to him, look on us, what's the implication? The man must have stopped looking. He saw, they saw each other, the fixed gaze, and who breaks it first? The lame man. Again, based on culture of the day, the assumption is if you're suffering, you must have sinned. And it's like, sometimes it's like, oh, look at the handicapped person. Stare at the deformity Something you haven't seen and you're just so, I mean, it's rubbernecking and I, I, I can't look away. It happens often with little children and parents that are trying to be, <laughs> trying to have some kind of compassion will often say to the child, don't stare, quit, quit staring. Well, where's Peter's mother-in-law when, when, when you need her uh, to say, quit, quit staring, Simon. But no. Peter fastens his eye, the man feeling uncomfortable, perhaps feeling judged, either because I'm a freak or because you think I'm a sinner who deserves this. He looks away. That man has nothing to give but, but harsh judgment. But that's not what Peter's doing. So he calls the man's gaze back to him. Look on us. Because I need you to see me seeing you. This is more than mere curiosity. This is compassion. This is not me 
dropping some coins into the cup and not acknowledging our shared humanity. This isn't me giving at the office so I don't have to give to anyone face to face. Now look at me. I see you. I'm not just looking, I'm seeing. He's a witness of more than the resurrection. He's a witness of those who need the good news of the resurrection more than anything else. This is a powerful moment. It's like those inmates I mentioned at the beginning of this week's lesson. I came to see them and befriend them. There was a homeless man right that always asked for alms across the street, kitty corner from the Vanderbilt Divinity School. Maybe he chose that place on purpose. If these people are studying for the ministry, maybe they'll minister to me. Not only did I attend the Divinity School for school, but I taught institute at the student center for all the grad students at Vanderbilt, and I'd always provide lunch for them. Pizza every week. You gotta help keep them coming somehow, right? And these amazing friends, we were all kind of in the fellowship of suffering together. I was a grad student, so were they, and we'd come together and just talk shop about the gospel every week. It was glorious. And we always had pizza. But sometimes when people were too busy and I overthought the pizza and underthought the attendance, we had some extra pizza. And there I was with a pizza box, walking back to my car to head home. And I always parked next to the Divinity School, where I spent most of my time. And so often walked right past this humble, homeless man that I started to get to know. And I'd give him my pizza box and <laughs> say, yeah, we didn't have as many people here as usual, but that means there's more for you, my friend. And it was more than, that. again, I, I, I'm sure you've had this experience as well, where you are willing to see, to be seen, to have eye to eye, soul to soul through that window and recognize someone whose soul is worth worlds to their loving Father in heaven. I love what Peter is doing here. I love what he's seeing here. So then in verse 5, and he, the layman, gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. It's like, oh, sweet. The eye contact worked. And even though I broke the gaze because he was staring at me, maybe, I mean, he seems, oh, personable. And he's not judging me. Oh, that means he must be ready to give me something. Awesome. Now, Peter is ready to give him something, but not what the man expects. And I love his phrase. It's one of my favorite things Peter ever said. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none which must have been deflating to this lame man. I'm not getting what I expect. Oh no, that's it's good news because you don't expect enough. You underestimate the generosity of God and the compassion of his servants and the power of his priesthood. So yes, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. And what is it I have? I have the power of God. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Strength they hadn't had 
for a single day of this man's long life. Not since birth. He'd never walked. And how he's, now he's being asked to? <laughs> Think about toddlers. We call them toddlers because they toddle around. <laughs> I've never used these things before. And neither had he. When Peter first tells him, rise up and walk, it's like disbelief. Like, not... <sighs> I can't, for more reasons than one. I love that Peter didn't just say it and make some kind of offer that would have seemed impossible to the man. No, he acted upon it too. It wasn't just testimony, it was exhortation. It wasn't just promise, it was help. It was assistance. Take him by the hand. This is how it works. I know this will work. Get up. You can do this. And he begins to lift him. This is so much more than the man hoped for. Mere gold? A little bit of silver? No, I've got something infinitely better than that. But I love the way he phrased it. That which I have, give I thee. What do we have? What did Mary have? She had a pound of spikenard. What did Nicodemus have? A hundred pounds of myrrh? What did Joseph of Arimathea have? A tomb never yet used. What did Peter and John have? They had faith. They had compassion. They had priesthood power. They had eyes to see and a hand to hold and arms to lift and virtue to allow to flow out of them. Just like Jesus did with the woman who dared. This is so beautiful. It's not just the gate. It's the whole scene. And to see with Peter what's happening here. My friends, what do you have to give? To give to God to help build his kingdom? To give to your fellow brothers and sisters who may be struggling? For some it is silver and gold. And I'm amazed at those who give that to those in need. Such generosity, such consecration, laying it at the apostles' feet just like we saw at the end of chapter 2. Building Zion to ensure that there is no poor among us. It's, it's beautiful. But like King Benjamin said, if you don't have finances to give, as long as your heart is in the right place and you would have given if you had, then count it, God does. But not just that, don't confine yourself to finances, whether you have it or don't have it. Be a little more creative. Think outside the box and ponder, what do I have to give? I've talked about this to teenagers in seminary classes and said, hey, you popular kids, you have something to give by giving people the time of day and your friendship and attention. You can, you smart kids, <laughs> You have something to give. You can help tutor those that need it, need your help. And don't look down on them as you do so. You athletes, you've got a lot to give, and not just to your sport, but to those who can't play it as well as you do. There's so much we can give if we'll have eyes to see not only the gifts God gave us, but the reasons he gave them to us to begin with the needs all around us. That's what Peter and John are doing. So extend the hand, 
faith and now works. Get up. It's okay. You're a little toddler, 40 year old toddler, not as cute as the little ones, but it's fun to see what you, what, as you're getting your legs beneath you. And he's as stoked as anyone. Verse 8 through 10, I love. He leaping up. I mean, Peter must have grabbed him and pulled hard. He, leaping up. He stood. He walked. He entered with them into the temple, walking, leaping, praising God. <laughs> the way Luke describes this in this passage. Can you sense the man's euphoria? It's not just rise up and walk. It's stand and walk and leap and jump and enter the temple. I love that that's the destination. Where are you guys going? Oh yeah, duh. You were coming up the steps, going through the beautiful gate, and you came to worship in the temple. Well, I have more to worship God and thank Him for than I ever have in my whole life. Can I come? It's like, I never want to leave you. And, and there he is, jumping around. Never seen a to toddler able to do that the first day they get up off the ground. <laughs> but this man who'd spent decades seeing everyone else stand and walk and enter. Oh, he raised them one. And he added leaping to the list. <laughs> and he comes bounding his way up the steps at the beautiful gate. And notice everyone's response. All the people saw him. <laughs> How could they miss him? Walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. Do you remember the man born blind and, people, and, and the, the, oh, the spin doctors that are trying to do a little crowd control and we don't want this to spread? And uh, you're not the same guy. You're his stunt double. You must have had a blind twin and you're the seeing one. Remember to ask the parents, is this the, your son who you say was born blind? The alleged blind man? Well, that's not going to work here at all. It's everybody knows the lame man. He gets laid there every day. And some days we drop a coin. Some days we avoid eye contact. But we've seen him at least from a distance often enough to know who he is. And that's the guy. And yet there he is, standing, walking, leaping. Wow. He's trying to try out his newfound legs. And he's giving them all they've got. They're amazed by this. So notice what happens next. Verse 11. As the layman, which was healed, held Peter and John. Now, had he overdone it with these new legs? All this leaping? Is he tired? And is he just kind of collapsing upon them? Maybe. Then again, how oh, don't you just want to hold on to those that have changed your life? Where, where, where are we going next? We're going to the temple? Is there somewhere else we can go? Well, as they see this embrace, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. <laughs> and I love the location. Solomon, whose wisdom was always put to the test in terms of judging things. Well, now it's your turn. How will you judge this situation? Here they are, greatly wondering what will they do. Now, when Peter saw it, Again, a perceptive use of his eyes. When he saw all these people, just mouth, jaws dropped, eyes wide, wondering what had happened, he answered unto the people. And I love that he's answering, even though they haven't asked him anything. Oh, they didn't need to. 
He's going to answer their unspoken question. He's perceiving their thoughts. His master Jesus was always so good at that. And here's his answer. Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Now, in some ways, that's kind of a dumb question. Like, why are you so surprised? Uh, because a man born lame is now jumping around the temp temple square like, a, like an antelope? I mean, what do you mean, why do we marvel? And then a follow-up question that is more appropriate or less surprising. Peter says, Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Peter seems to be such a master of personal pronouns. He chooses them so carefully. Remember when he's crying repentance, he uses the second person plural, the ye, pointing the finger directly at an audience that he hopes will take things personally enough to change, and they do. Well, here it's first person plural. It's the we and the us and the our. And he's asking them, why are you looking at us? Why do you think we have done anything? The glory is not ours, because the power isn't ours either. We're going to see... Actually, it's really fascinating. The fact this happened at Solomon's porch, and this place of judgment, it's just a colonnaded area, I think on the east side of the Temple Mount. Uh, but Jesus had actually... There is one place in John chapter 10 that specifically mentions the location on the Temple where Jesus is having a certain conversation. And it happened to be at Solomon's porch. We just saw the beautiful gate. Well, now we're inside and we're in Solomon's porch. And when Jesus was there, just a little while earlier during his mortal ministry, in John chapter 10, among other things, what does he do? He teaches about the Father being the source of every good thing. He talks about, I'm not the good one here. The Father's the good one here. And what's amazing is that that exact same location Man, Peter learned his lesson well. He's getting a little deja vu. And right in the same spot, Jesus gave the glory to the Father. It's my turn to do the same. I will not take this glory to myself. I will pass it on and give credit where credit is due. Why are you looking at us? We had very, very little to do with this. That's his second question. He'll build on that in a moment. But one last thought on the first why marvel? Once you have faith in Christ, in some ways, <laughs> everything will astound you, but nothing will surprise you. It's not just that your jaw will drop, but your knees will drop in gratitude. Because you knew God promised, and the promises are unto you and to your children, they're unto us that God will work wonders. Joel said it would be that way. Jesus did too. Incredible things. All through Christ. And so he builds on that. Verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus, whom ye, pointing the finger again, delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, 
whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now, it's amazing what Peter just did. He took advantage of a moment to... Not only was he answering questions they hadn't asked, he was teaching truth they hadn't expected. And he, he condensed a whole first discussion <laughs> into just this one moment as they're standing, eyes wide, jaw dropped. How did this happen? How did you heal this man? Good question. Let me back up and tell you the whole doctrine of Christ. I did this through Jesus. I did it through the one that you delivered up to death. Even though Pilate was determined to let him go, he made that crystal clear. He kept trying to give you a little, hoping it would be enough, and it wasn't for you. And so you had him crucified. You wanted, you desired a murderer. You wanted Barabbas to be set free instead of Jesus. You killed the Prince of Life, which is such a powerful title. Prince, by the way, it's a good translation of the Greek term, but it can also mean things, it, it more, it literally means the first to lead. I'm not talking about a prince, you know, leading the kingdom under the king's direction. But it could also mean, some other translations render it author, because they're writing something. They're creating the, the narrative, the storyline. Some have even translated it as pioneer. Someone who really is the first to lead, the, to cut the path, the trailblazer, he could have been called. And to refer to him as the prince of life? A trailblazer into the realms of glory? The author and finisher of our faith, but someone who, the Prince of Life, the, the leader into life eternal, some pioneer who would point the way to an entirely new way of living. That's the way, the truth, and the life himself. That's Jesus. I love the way Peter speaks of his Lord. You can tell that he misses him that he loves him, that all he wants to do is prove that love by feeding his sheep. Including calling out some sheep that hadn't done good by the Good Shepherd. Again, no sugarcoating. Calls it out. Cries repentance. This is bold, impetuous Peter. This time he's leaping into the fray, not slashing off ears, but pricking hearts and perking up ears in hopes that they'll feel something and ask Men and brethren, what shall we do? Where do we go from here? I need to change. I know that now. Peter's missionary approach is magnificent. It's so fascinating. And he seems to do it every chance he can. He did it this way in chapter 2. Now he's doing it this way in chapter 3. We'll see him repeat it often. But here, unlike the way he said it in chapter 2, he added a word he hadn't used before. It's a word he used twice here. And it's a word that would have had deep, and powerful and painful and personal meaning. He didn't just say you delivered him up. He said you denied him. He didn't just say you had him killed. He said you denied the Holy One of Israel. And that's a word that hurts Peter's heart. He knows the pain of denying someone. But he also knows the forgiveness that can flow 
If you'll just turn your life over to Him, He'll change you. He'll give you chances to prove your love. And He's doing that for them. This conversation is one of my favorites. It's so profound. And Peter continues it. Notice what he says in verse 16. And His name. Now we're shifting pronouns. Okay, We're going to use the third person singular. And the His belongs to Jesus. His name, through faith in His name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by Him hath given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Oh, do you see, Peter, what he's doing? Shining the light on the light of the world? He's unwilling to get in the way of that light. You ever been on a tour and the tour guide keeps standing in front of the exhibit he's explaining? And you're like, great explanation. Could you move so I can actually see what you're talking about? I actually fear that we teachers are guilty of that more often than we would care to admit. And everyone seems to look at us and like, wow, amazing how much they know. What can I get? No, no, no. Get out of the way. Let me see Jesus. And Peter was a master at pointing beyond him, above him, to Jesus. Just like Jesus had done in the same place for the Father. I love what Peter is doing through all of this. Why are you looking at us? We didn't do anything. Whatever, you're the one. I just saw you. You lifted him up by the hand. You like yanked him off the ground. He's been leap bouncing around the building ever since. That wasn't me. I mean, yeah, it was my hand, but it was the Lord's hand that healed him. It was my voice, but it was the voice of God in earthen vessels. So don't look at me as if I had done some great thing. Look at the Lord, whom ye denied, and please deny him no more. So verse 17, Now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it. Wot is not a word we use anymore, but Joseph helps us, JST. I know, I know that through ignorance ye did it. Talk about giving them the benefit of the doubt. You knew but would not know. On Palm Sunday, you were chanting, shouting, Hosanna. By Friday, you were shouting, crucify him. I know so much of it was you being puppets on your leader's string. And so, so many of you are guilty of ignorance more than insolence, of weakly going with the flow, but not causing the current. You did it through ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now, that's really giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's even taking it up a notch. This is as close to, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, as you can get from Peter. And then he says, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Once again, he's honoring God's plan, and even everyone's place in it. I don't think he's excusing the people, but he is trying to give them hope. He had done that in his sermon in chapter 2 as well. Remember, this was part of the foreknowledge of God. And he let us in on that foreknowledge when he prophesied of it all. That's what the prophets have done all throughout history. All the, the mouths of all the holy prophets. Sounds like Peter paid attention to the Old Testament survey course that Jesus gave when he appeared among them in that closed door upper room. And now he's passing on what he learned. Every prophet said it would be this way. Well, it's been this way. Again, not to excuse your role, 
but I don't think you really knew what you were doing. Now, next he says something <laughs> that I have loved for a long, long time. We are now at chapter 3, verse 19 of Acts. And Peter is going to continue his message, and he's actually going to prophesy of some incredibly kind of big-picture things. He did that last time in chapter 2 by quoting Joel, and not just situating the outpouring of the Spirit, but putting it in bigger-picture terms in the last days. Well, he's going to do it again, but the way he says it is incredible. It reminds me of an experience I had that was truly life-changing for me. It happened when I was 19 years old. Oh, I guess I was, how old was I? I was 21. Yeah, it was the end of my mission, not the beginning. Elder John K. Carmack of the Quorum of the Seventy had come to Puerto Rico. Now, I didn't really know Elder Carmack, but he blew me away with his first impression. This guy knew everything. Uh, later, uh, when President Hinckley created the Perpetual Education Fund, he, tabbed, he tagged uh, Elder Carmack to run it personally. It's like, hey, it's a new thing, never been done, but you can handle it, Elder Carmack. You can handle anything. When he came to us, he quoted scripture without, I don't know if he, I don't remember him ever opening the book, but he quoted so many scriptures, and he'd even say, oh, there's a footnote there, and it'll take you to, and you're like, you memorized the footnotes too? Mind-blowing. Well, there were about, oh, two dozen of us in a chapel in San Juan, and Elder Carmack comes in with our mission president and an Area 70, and he gives this incredible talk, scriptural to the core. And then near the end of it, he looks around and just says, um, which one of you elders is the scriptorian of the group? And a bunch of my missionary buddies, punks as they were, started whispering, oh, uh, Halverson, Halverson, yeah, 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 make Elder Halverson do it. And Elder Carmack's looking around, oh, which one's Elder Halverson? I was ready to take my tag out and throw it behind my shoulder, like, <laughs> don't know, I guess he couldn't make it. But all eyes on me, I'm like, uh, a little sheepishly, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm Elder Halverson. And he said, oh, so you're the scriptorian of the group. I'm like, I, I didn't say that. I love the scriptures, I, but I don't know them anywhere near as well as you do. And he said, that's okay. You're the one missionary here that has my permission not to listen to the rest of my talk. And I'm like, huh? What's the catch? Oh, there was a catch. He said, I'm going to speak for about 10 more minutes. And during those 10 minutes, I want you to look up Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, and prepare to teach us everything you possibly can from those three verses. In fact, he expected me to look at every single word. I knew that because he told me. He said, look at every word. Look, pay attention to the tenses of the verbs and the antecedents of the pronouns. Right then I could almost hear my high school English teacher laughing in the distance, wondering if I remembered what any of those things were. Well, thankfully I did. But he said, 10 minutes is all you've got. When I'm, when I'm done, you start. And I want you to teach us everything you possibly can. Good luck. Now, for the next 10 minutes, I didn't hear a word he said from that, on, that point on, because I was feasting upon the words of Christ like I never had before. I did look at the, those three verses and read them all, word by word by word. I read them multiple times. I looked up footnotes and checked cross-references. I actually went back and read the chapter heading and then read the whole chapter to see where it fit. I started looking up things in the topical guide or the Bible dictionary. I checked geography. That's when I first found out that Solomon's porch was the same place that other thing happened in, the, in Jesus' ministry and that they were parallel. 
In fact, I took those and paralleled them to us as missionaries and said, everything we do, we have to give God the glory. We've got to get out of the way of what we're describing. I taught principles from the Book of Mormon that tied into that and shared examples and cross-references from the Old Testament. When my time was, had come, I went off for more than 10 minutes on things that I had learned in the 10 minutes prior, none of which I knew before that. I'll admit, when Elder Carmack said, look up Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, I knew that that one was about the restoration. If I remember correctly, it was a scripture mastery from seminary. I at least knew what was in it, generally. But I also knew he expected more than me to stand up and go, oh, that's a restoration scripture. No, I... But I was amazed by how much was there. When, it was, when I was done, by the way, kind of out of breath, Elder Carmack stood up and looked down and smiled and said, hmm... Elder Halverson, that was pretty good. I learned a few things from that. Thank you. But did you notice this? Oh, and what about this? Oh, and you totally missed this. And then this word. And then what do you think about this in context? And what he does here? It's like, and I was feeling lower and more, you know, littler and littler the more he went on. As I realized, I barely scratched the surface. Well, he laughed and said, Elder Halverson, don't feel bad. You did, you did great. I just want you to know that like you just discovered, there's more than you thought. Well, there's still more than you thought even after that. There's still more than I thought. That's why I keep on studying. You should too. But then he said, Elder Halverson, this verse belongs to you now. Consider it a gift. Because you've earned it. You made it yours. You paid a price of study. And you can keep doing that. He said, when I was a missionary long, long ago, a general authority came to my mission and singled me out and said, Elder Carmack, would you look up Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21 and prepare to teach us everything you possibly can from those verses? He said that general authority was Bruce R. McConkie. And believe me, he found a lot more in those verses than I did. <laughs> but that day, he gave those verses to me. And today, I'm giving them to you. And so in my Bible, next to Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, I wrote in the margin... Elder John K. Carmack, May 24th, 1996. And those are my verses. So don't ever read them. No, I'm kidding. We'll read them together. I won't spend as much time on them as I did then. But I challenge you to. And not just on these verses, but any others that burn like the bush that calls us to turn aside to see. For these, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, Repent ye, therefore. Catch the therefore. Therefore, because of what you did to Jesus through your ignorance, but what God provided through Jesus in his omniscience, repent ye, therefore. Jesus made it all possible. So now you can. So repent. And be converted. In chapter 2, it was be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, all that is implied here, but to be converted is so much more than that. Remember when Jesus had said to Peter, speaking of words that would have meant a lot to him, after you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Yeah, Peter knew that real conversion was more than testimony. It was more than repentance. But those things are a step towards it. So repent, be converted. Why? So that Christ's promises can be fulfilled in you, that your sins may be blotted out. And what a powerful verb. Blotted out. Not just 
uh, wished away. No, blotted out. Like Jesus wearing the towel at the Last Supper when he washed the apostles' feet and just moved the stains from them to him, blotted them out as he began to bear them instead. But notice what all this blotting, all this repenting, all this converting is for. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. He's the one that's sending forth the blessings of refreshment, the blessings of restoration. He's coming from heaven alongside his Father. He's sending John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, Moses, Elias, Elijah. From the presence of the Lord, this time, these times of refreshing will come. And he shall send Jesus Christ. The Father will send the Son. That's how personal this restoration will be. And don't be surprised by this. You should have seen it coming. Which before was preached unto you. These prophets have borne witness of it from the very beginning. Now, the JST adds another phrase, which sounds so much like what Peter would have said. It's not just, which before was preached unto you. Here's the addition. Whom ye have crucified. Again, there's Peter's boldness. Not apologizing for anything. Not sugarcoating a single thing. You crucified him. All y'all. But fear not. It was part of the plan. Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Yeah. About the restoration, you think? He doesn't use the word restoration, but he doubles it with the word refreshing and the word restitution. Restitution, actually. I, I, restoration is beautiful. It restores the truth. And that's been prophesied from the very beginning. All these uh, prophets that were staring apostasy in the face, having hope in the final triumph, putting their eggs in the restorations basket, banking on the last days, knowing that at some point it would all, it would all come together. The fact he would call it here not just restoration, but refreshing and restitution. Think about those words, they're beautiful. This is ah, refreshing. He's not just, it's like refresh, refresh your screen and see what I missed and what, what has come in since then. The Lord is refreshing the system and all this truth has returned in this final dispensation, the fullness of times. But it's not just he's refreshing this, the screen, it's refreshing to us. As we have been parched, suffering through this famine in the land, the lack of living water, and it is flowing forth and refreshing everything. And restitution? Restitution sometimes is a word more aligned with repentance than re restoration. But maybe that fits too. If restitution is meant to make up for something, the restoration makes up for everything. It ties together every loose end. No wonder all the holy prophets spoke and prophesied and just looked forward to our day. And we're living it. This is such a magnificent prophecy. And we're witnessing it. In fact, we're not just witnessing, we're participating. We're allowing it all to take place. Now, one of the things that struck me 
as a 21-year-old missionary was, again, with Elder Carmack's help, he said, pay attention to the tenses of the verbs and past and present, future, all that. Pay attention to the plurals and singulars, he said. And with that in mind, I noticed that it wasn't the time of refreshing or the time of restitution. It was the times in both instances. And I thought, times? What is this, multiple restorations? And then with the help of the chapter heading, which I believe was written by Elder McConkie, which he's the one that assigned that verse to Elder Carmack, who then assigned it to me. The chapter heading lets us know it's an age of restoration. And that's beautiful. I've sometimes asked students, give me the date for the restoration. And some will say 1820, because the first vision. I'm like, oh, that's good. But really, is that when it all restores? Oh, 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 1830. That's right. 1830, April 6, 1830, the church was restored. Like, well, it was officially established that day. That's good. But was everything restored? I'm like, oh, well, the priesthood was restored. Oh, earlier. That's May 15, 1829. Shortly thereafter, that's Aaronic priesthood. Shortly thereafter, Melchizedek. So, 1829, is that a better date? Oh, but what about Kirtland Temple and the restoration of priesthood keys, gathering of Israel, gospel of Abraham, sealing power? Like, so is 1836 a better date for the restoration? What about when Baptism for the Dead was restored and temple ordinances? And by the time we've <laughs> pushed the point enough, students start to realize, oh, it's an age of restoration. These are times of refreshing and restitution. And if you recall what President Nelson has told us recently, oh, we ain't seen nothing yet. Listen to this from a recent talk that he gave. And these are some of the best words I've ever heard to describe an ongoing restoration. He said, we're witnesses to a process of restoration. If you think the church has been fully restored, <laughs> you're just seeing the beginning. There is much more to come. Oh, wait till next year. And then the next year. Eat your vitamin pills, get your rest. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, eat your vitamins, get your rest. This is coming from a doctor, not just a prophet. But what a prescription. As Elder Maxwell used to say, all the easy things have been done already. From here on out, it's nothing but high adventure. And in the kinds of changes we're seeing already, the multiplication of temples, the, some of the changes in the endowment or the sealing ordinance, oh, there's been some profound things that are taking place as the restoration of the gospel continues to unfold. Ongoing, indeed. Peter then finishes this discourse. He says in verse 22, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. How's that for Peter the Scriptorian? We never met Simon the Scriptorian, but Peter seems to know every passage by heart. And here he is pointing out what he remembers from 
Moses' writings, someday a new prophet will come just like me. In fact, better than me. He will be a leader and a lawgiver. He will be a prophet and yet so much more. He'll be a deliverer. He'll bring you to a promised land in ways that I never could. And that's Jesus. Peter knows it. Jesus knew it too. In fact, when Jesus appears to the Nephites, this is 3 Nephi chapter 20, he quotes the same passage and says, I'm the one that Moses was talking about. Peter got it. And then verse 25 and 26, he says to them, if that's who Jesus is, who are you? Ye are this. And what a list of identities. By the way, Jesus will quote this one in 3 Nephi 20 as well. I mean, there's so many parallels between Acts 3 and 3 Nephi 20. It's really beautiful. Right after the crucifixion of Christ, it's almost like, okay, Peter, you quote these verses to the Jews, I'll go quote them to the Nephites. Ready? Break. And then they go their separate ways, but they quote the same verses. And to establish identity, look at verse 25. Ye are the children of the prophets, those prophets who foretold these days, those prophets who bore witness that Christ would come. You are their descendants. You're the ones that receive, that deserve the inheritance. So live up to it. You're the children of the prophets. What else? And of the covenant which God made with our fathers. You're children of the prophets. You're children of the covenant. It's up to us to help God keep it. And this is the covenant specifically. He said unto Abraham. So this is the Abrahamic covenant that we're the children of. In thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. It's not just the P of posterity. We're going to need posterity like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven because we got work to do. It's the P of promised land. We're trying to gather everyone into it. It's the P of priesthood and all the blessings that flow therefrom. That's what we're trying to bless the world with. So God is choosing you and your seed that's the exclusive half of the Abrahamic covenant, to go bless all the kindreds of the earth. That's the radically inclusive half of the Abrahamic covenant. And how's the Lord doing it? Unto you first, Peter says, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now does it make any more sense why Peter's crying repentance <laughs> every chance that he can? The reason God cho chooses people is for them to choose everyone else so that they can be chosen as well. It's exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. Okay? But he starts with us by doing what? By calling us to repentance. He's got to clean us up if we're ever going to be presentable to the rest of the world. Which is an admission. He didn't choose us because we were more worthy than everyone else. We needed repentance just like they did. He just chose us first, maybe because he knew we would repent. Maybe he knew we were so bad, we would, it'd be obvious that we needed it. But if we took him up on his offer and changed, if we recognized why the Lord had raised up his son, Jesus, to bless us, and the ultimate blessing was in turning us. Remember the word to repent means to turn he turned us away from our iniquities. And that was a head-on collision in, in the making. Collision with consequence. Instead, he helped us turn the wheel. He saved us from the consequences of our sins. And knowing what that feels like, that deliverance, that freedom, 
we'll be freedom fighters forever after. Crying repentance to everyone who needs the good news. Everyone who will feel pricked in their heart and then ask the ultimate question, where do I go from here? And where do we go? We come unto Christ. Repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. And repeat. <laughs> then extend the ripples even further. Go back to wherever you came from, not only with a changed language, but a changed heart. And thus the kingdom rolls forth. Please, my, my, my hearers, you can picture Peter saying, it's not that I'm asking you to stop being who you are. In some ways, I'm asking you to start being who you really are. This is not a change as much as it is a change back, a return to, a stepping into your truest identities, because ye are the children of the prophets. Ye are the children of the covenant. Our own prophet, President Nelson, Peter-like, has said similar things, especially to a rising generation that ends up doing a lot of things in ignorance that they shouldn't. Usually, the thing they're most ignorant of is who they really are. And so what did President Nelson tell them? Their identity. He admitted there's all kinds of identities out there, and that's great. But they all need to be play second fiddle to the greatest identities that lie at our core. And the three that are first and foremost, ye are children of God, he told us. Ye are children of the covenant. Sound like what Peter's saying? Sound like what Jesus is saying? And ye are disciples of Christ. As long as we can fit every other identity underneath those three, then you can be whatever you want to be. Because first and foremost, you are being everything God needs you to be. So will we be it? If we will prepare to make a huge difference in the world, and prepare for the world to try to make a big difference on you so you'll stop it. <laughs> the growth of the kingdom always precedes and precipitates the growth of opposition to it. The bells of hell are beginning to ring, to quote Brigham Young, okay? And it's all hands on deck. We've got to nip this thing in the bud. We've got to stop this. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus and all the Jewish leaders were like, oh great, that's, that news is going to spread. We got to kill him and end this thing. Or Jesus, all these things, and we got to put an end to him to put an end to his message. And then, oh, wait, great, we killed him. Great, but that's not even done because we got to make sure nobody ever thinks about him being, being risen, or the end will be worse than the beginning. So we're going to stop this. We're going to fight it. And that's exactly what you start seeing more and more of in chapter four of Acts. The church is growing and the persecution or opposition to it is intensifying. Verse 1, as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. I mean, here's Peter spreading the word. 3,000 people got baptized last time. How many people are going to join the church today? I don't know, but I don't want to see any of them. So priests, temple captain, the captain of the guard that are watching over the temple, Sadducees, which are more of the, the nobility that help run the Temple Mount too, they all come running, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
Well, they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. We're not supposed to have a trial at night. Well, don't remind us about what we did with Annas and Caiaphas and the nighttime false trials of Jesus. But we're going to put you in lockdown, imprison you, and tomorrow we'll figure out what we're going to do. Because again, what we figured doing to Jesus hasn't exactly worked very well. So let's, let's talk about it more. Notice, by the way, they're grieved because they're teaching, grieved because they're preaching, grieved because the word is spreading, and specifically the word of Christ's resurrection. Remember, Sadducees don't believe in it. And Sadducees are also in charge of the temple, and that's where most of these things are happening. These pesky disciples keep getting endowed with power from on high, and then doing powerful things that no one else can explain. we we got to put an end to this. So that's one reaction. And here's another, verse 4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. <laughs> well, Sadducees, this is really backfiring on you, isn't it? You're wanting to lay your hands on the apostles. Well, the apostles are laying hands on thousands, giving them the gift of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. You're wanting to put them in the hold. Well, you can't put the work of God behind bars. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. No mobs may combine. Armies may assemble. Calumny may defame. But the truth of God will go forth nobly, boldly, and independent. Yesterday it was 3,000. Today it's 5,000. We're not even multiplying loaves and fishes. But we're multiplying people who are, have come to feast upon the bread of life and are, are now willing to go forth as fishers of men. Good luck with your opposition. So verse 5, And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest. Whew, that's a lot of opposition, including the big guns that just took down Jesus. You can picture how frustrated Annas and Caiaphas would be. We thought we ended this. Why does it keep going and, even worse, keep growing? Well, they've all gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Mm -hmm. And that is the question. That's the point Peter's been trying to make all along. So, I'm so glad you asked. Good to see you again, by the way, Caiaphas. Last time I was only outside your palace, and I was afraid. I'm more than happy to come inside and I have no more fear and will never again allow myself to succumb to it. So by what name? Ah, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, which had just been breathed into him, so filled that there was no room for fear, no room for hesitation, just courage, just faith, just boldness, as everything else has spilled out over the top. That's what being filled with the Holy Ghost does to us. He said to them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole. By the way, this goes back to Peter. He was such a great grammarian. 
because this is less about the pronouns. This is more about the passive voice because he uses passive there. Notice he didn't say, if we're being arraigned or examined because of what we just did on the temple steps, or if by what means we healed the lame man. No, he uses the passive. You see, passive voice is used to avoid pointing fingers. Usually it's used to avoid blame. Here, he's using it to avoid credit. He just says, oh yeah, there was a good deed done. Huh, wonder where the Boy Scouts are. Uh, it, this man was made whole. Hmm, wonder how that happened. I love that Peter, even his grammar, is avoiding credit. But then he gives the credit, but gives it to whom it is due. Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that's how far I want this news to spread, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, not just Jesus of Nazareth, which is what most people called him, which what was written in, in Latin and Hebrew and Greek above the cross. No, this isn't just Jesus. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, whom ye crucified. Again, he says that every time he brings it up. He wants to prick hearts. He wants people to know of their guilt so they can come to have that guilt swept away. So this Jesus, if the name, his name, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, bad news followed by good news, crucifixion followed by resurrection, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. The him and the ye vary as, as usual, giving Christ all the credit. Answering their question, but sneaking in a cry to repentance a call to change, and a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, since Peter is one of his special witnesses. Peter is one of my all-time favorite people. And it's in the book of Acts, far more than in the Gospels, that you see the rock take shape. And speaking of rock, since Peter knows he's not the real one, he says in verse 11, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. <laughs> you neglected it, you rejected it. But notice what it's become, which has become the head of the corner. In other words, the cornerstone, the, the founding foundation block from which the rest of the foundation will be built. So he calls him that, the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Ah, there's something beautiful about this irony. The discarded rock ends up becoming the cornerstone. This is what Jacob in the Book of Mormon is wrestling with at the end of Jacob 4 and all of Jacob 5. How is it possible that if you reject that rock, will you ever get another chance to build upon it? Peter's trying to give them all those second chances. The allegory of the olive tree describes on a kind of house of Israel level how it all takes place, most of which revolves around the times of restitution of all things. Well, Peter's trying to provide a little refreshment here to them. You just have to come unto Christ. You crucified him, but that was not the end of the story. Not his, not ours, not yours. 
He is the head of the corner. He's the real rock. I'm a pebble by comparison. And it's only in his name that this lame man walks. It's only in his name that any of us will walk the straight and narrow path that leads back to God. This is an absolutely powerful testimony of who Jesus is. No other stone, no other person, no other name, no other plan, no other way or truth or life than the Prince of Life himself, whom you crucified, but whom lives again. So turn to him. Now, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and were most likely shocked by that. I mean, they're the ones, they just spent a night in prison. That didn't sober them at all. In fact, it emboldened them. And it's the boldness that blows us away. They perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. I can hear your Galilean accent. <laughs> Where did you study? Where did you learn all these things? They're so shocked by that boldness when they thought there would be backwardness. Well, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, <laughs> he's there the whole time, they could say nothing against it. I love this guy. Can I come with you to wherever you go? Temple? Oh, go in. Prison? Uh, sign me up. <laughs> and this wonderful lame man, just leaping around anywhere Peter and John happened to be. And he is there standing, literally, as exhibit A, that the power of Jesus Christ is, it's unstoppable, it's insurpassable, it's undeniable, because I'm here standing, and everybody knows me. You may not know Peter and John, although they're starting to. They marked it. Did you catch what they said? They took knowledge of them. These guys, yeah, they had been with Jesus. And in some ways that explains everything. How on earth can a man born lame now be leaping? Oh, Jesus. How on earth can an ignorant, unlearned fisherman quote Old Testament scripture like it's written on the back of his hand? Ah. Uh, he was with Jesus. How can people that we're trying to intimidate come back and intimidate us with such boldness? Ah, uh, they had been with Jesus. Those who know us and are shocked by who we are when they never expected so much those who underestimated your potential, well, really they were underestimating the potential of Jesus to change us into people more like him. If there's anything anyone knows about us, if they take knowledge of us in any way, may that knowledge consist of this. That person was with Jesus. Verse 15 but when they had commanded them to go outside out of the council, get out of my face, I, I can't stand this boldness. They conferred among themselves. They didn't spend enough time last night <laughs> discussing solutions to this growing problem. 
But this is what they say. What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. See, they can't even bring the name up. Ah, they can't admit Jesus. They don't want those words to even come out of their lips. So, no, no, this ah, name. I never want to hear it again. I certainly don't want to hear it from these people that stand as such obvious evidence of the power of that name. How are we going to get rid of them? Again, we got to kill Lazarus all over again. Anybody know how to break the legs of the lame man so he stops leaping around? How do you silence the mouths of these fishermen? How do we get them to be unlearned again? Can we unlearn them? Because it's, they, they have no ignorance. And that's the problem. We want to keep everyone else in ignorance. So we got to put an end to it. What are we going to do? We're going to threaten them. Okay? We're going to cast a shadow in front of their light. We're going to stand in front of the stone that is rolling forth and we'll stop it in its tracks. Oh, good luck with that. If you're on the statue side, you get bowled over. You get crushed. Well, just wait. So verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, not even a mention, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Well, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, eh, judge ye. We'll let you be the judges of that. But our side of things, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And we've seen it. And we've heard it. That is pure testimony. And it can't be stopped. Unless, of course, we stop it. Our mouths can't be closed unless we close them. And if we begin fearing man more than God, if we begin worrying too much about what the world thinks of us rather than what the world needs from us, ah, uh, then maybe the stone isn't rolling forth the way it should. We just have to consider whose judgment is more important, heavens or earths. So verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they did it all over again, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. That's a bummer. Like if we, if we had any other excuse to really rough them up, we would, but they've done nothing wrong and darn it, we know it. And so does everybody else. And then this phrase, because of the people, that's really what's keeping them from doing worse things to Peter and John. The people know, the people saw. This is like Jesus who sometimes brought up John the Baptist's popularity as personal protection. <laughs> and the people, uh, the, the, leader, the, the rulers, the leaders are like, we can't do anything against that because then the people would be against us. Same thing happening here. Why? For all men glorified God for that which was done. They're all blown away by this. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Four decades of proof refuted in an instant when strength from God flowed into this man. Unstoppable. You, you picture what the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and captains of the temple and the rulers of the, of the people 
well, that are scared of the people. You see what they're up against? I don't envy them. Somehow they have to put the genie back in the bottle. And this was no genie. This was a rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues of fire, the spirit of God burning, and good luck putting that fire out. <laughs> good luck sticking your puny arm forth and turning back the Missouri River. Good luck with your little unhallowed hands. So verse 23, being let go, what are James and John going to do next? They went to their own company. Ah, oh, it's so important to have righteous friends to come home to, especially during times of opposition. People who have your back, and they go back to them. And those numbers are swelling. Not just 10 other apostles, not just, uh, what, 120 other friends, not just 3,000 converts or 5,000 converts or however many more converted overnight when we were in prison. They came home to that company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Now think about this. What are they trying to accomplish with that report? Ah, oh, sorry guys, fellow disciples, we got to be careful. We're, we're supposed to shut up. We're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore. Oh, no, no, that was not their report. They said what happened to them, and then notice this. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. That unity is what defines these people. And they said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And then they begin quoting scripture to put their circumstances into proper perspective. That's what scripture is for. And this is the scripture they quoted. It's another psalm. It's their hymn book. Those are words that quickly come back to mind. In verse 25 and 26, they quote Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2. And this is their rendition. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Oh, this was music to their ears. Music from the Israelite hymn book, the Psalms. But music to our ears too, if you caught it. Do you know your Handel's Messiah well enough? To hear the tune, good bass, singing these words about the heathen raging, the people imagining. Interesting combination. Rage, you're up in arms, these enemies are there. But what are they? It's just vain imaginations. This is no enemy. They've done nothing wrong. The leaders know that. That's why they can't do anything in, to Peter and John. They're imagining vain things. And those who attack the church in our day, there is so much imagination behind their accusations as well. So much rage. People standing up and gathering together against the Lord, against his Christ. But when you know that this is how it was supposed to be, it's easier to navigate it. When you know your scriptures and realize that this is prophecy fulfilled, ah, yes, he said it would be this way. Are we turning to scripture often enough and with the inspiration of the Spirit enough to find the verses that will help us navigate our present circumstance? Peter's been doing that repeatedly. Now the people are doing the same. And they're singing this psalm right alongside David. Now, verse 27, song's over. 
but their rejoicing isn't. Notice what they say. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus. See, this is still part of their prayers of, and praising. Speaking to God the Father, thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed. So that's what Christ means, Messiah, anointed one. You're the one who anointed, chose him. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, that's the Romans, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now they're building on what Peter has taught twice already. They're seeing all this negativity and everything Jesus went through, but they see God's hand in it. They didn't stop the plan. They moved it forward. They didn't frustrate. They fulfilled. Little did they know. But how much do we know? That the Father is behind all of this and the work has not finished. It's just begun and we're, we get to be a part of it. This was part of what God's hand and counsel predetermined. Now, that doesn't make it all easy. It reassures us that this is part of the plan too. This persecution against Jesus and now the persecution against us. We can handle it. That's what they say basically in verse 29, or at least admitting to God what they're up against. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings. So please be aware of what we're up against. Behold those threatenings. And grant unto thy servants, not just Peter and John, but all of us, that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And that word, boldness, defines everything we've seen so far. All boldness, no fear. All courage, no worry. All spirit, no flesh. They go on by stretching forth thine hand to heal. See, they knew it too. It wasn't Peter's hand. It was the Lord's. And that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Oh, Peter would be so proud. Not proud of himself, proud of them for realizing that he had nothing to be proud of himself. They are giving all the credit to this holy child, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, verse 31 when they had prayed, see this whole discourse was a conversation with God. After this prayer, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And of course, I mean, something had to shake. It wasn't them. You couldn't shake Peter. You couldn't shake John. But their unshakenness oh, shook the place where they were all assembled. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Again, every ounce of anxiety spilling out over the brim as the cup was filled with the power of God through the Spirit of God. As a result, they spake the word of God with boldness, just like they'd asked for, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Sound like Zion? Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. How oh, unity to the core, spirit making us one, changing our hearts, shaping our souls, consecration. Stewardship instead of ownership. Oh, can I have this of yours? Oh, so I said, sure, it's not mine. It's God's. That wasn't Peter's hand that healed the layman. It was the Lord's hand. So this isn't my stuff that I'm holding on to. It's the Lord's stuff, and he can do whatever he wants with it. 
We are simply his stewards. And they give it all to one another. No wonder then, verse 33 can follow. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. This is a, a, a second round of consecration as people are flooding into a church that is not promising to give everything to them, but is asking that they give everything they can. Oh, high intensity, great expectations. But people wanting to lift, or better said, be lifted to that higher level. And so they come to consecrate. They come to give. And, the, and what are the apostles giving? Since silver and gold have they none, they seem to redistribute everything and keep nothing for themselves. That's the fascinating part. If this has been going on for a while, and, they, and, and disciples, converts, sell all they have to make their assets more liquid, so that we can do things with them at a, at a drop of a hat. If they're giving all of that to Peter and John, and when they go into the temple, they have nothing to give the lame man. Oh, they're giving it all away and keeping nothing for themselves. Oh, God will provide. I've seen the lilies. I've watched the sparrows. We'll be fine. We'll be fine in prison. We'll come out again. We'll be fine anywhere because the Lord is with us. I love that they can bear such powerful witness of the resurrection. That's the spiritual side. I love that the people are coming to consecrate. That's the temporal side. Uh, the first is the first great commandment. The second is the second great commandment. It's the vertical. It's the horizontal. It's everything. It's Zion. It's one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness with no poor among them. This is the city of Enoch taking shape right there in Jerusalem, despite the persecution and opposition all around them. Like I said before, you've got thousands of rich young rulers to whom God is commending his kingdom. It's incredible. I'll give you one example that we'll need to hold on to because he will keep popping up later in the letters of Paul, or at least the mission of Paul. Verse 36 and 37. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. So that's, we can call him Joseph if you want. He's going to be more commonly referred to as Barnabas. And we'll see him repeatedly. He ends up becoming a mission companion of Paul. And I'd want him as a mission companion. I'd take him any day. After all, he's a son of consolation. Another way to describe that is a son of encouragement. It says he's a Levite of the country of Cyprus. But what did he do? Like so many others unnamed around him, he'll become the representative, kind of stand proxy for everyone that goes unnamed here. He, having land, sold it, just like they did. He brought the money, just like they did. He laid it at the apostles' feet, just like they did. So among the unnumbered thousands doing just this, we do get one named Barnabas. So fitting. 
that a son of consolation would grow up to be a father of consolation. That a son of encouragement would then go forth to encourage everyone else. I love the fact that he's a Levite, by the way. Because in the story of the Good Samaritan, it was the Samaritan that was good to this poor wounded Jew. It wasn't the Levite that was good. But here's a good Levite. Here's a Levite that's going to play the part of the Good Samaritan over and over and over again through his words and his deeds, through his service and his sacrifice. Because he's not only going to go forth and share the word right alongside Paul, his senior companion, but actually, <laughs> I guess Paul would be his junior companion since Barnabas joined the church before Paul ever did. <laughs> but Barnabas would preach and teach, but here he would give. He would consecrate. He would sell all that he had so he had enough oil and wine to pour into the wounds of any suffering Jew or Gentile, as the case might be. That he would have enough to go to any innkeeper and give them money to cover the costs of anyone's healing. Again, keep an eye on Barnabas. He's a companion worth holding on to. Paul will feel that way at least. And like I said, he's the example of what so many saints were doing. But his story is then followed immediately by its opposite. A negative example. Every time we see things, there's a choice to be made, right? Multiple, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And which way are we going to go? Will we believe or reject? For this, we have to skip over the chapter heading of Acts chapter 5. Pretend it isn't there, because it wasn't when Luke first wrote the book. Uh, chapter headings are great to help us see what's coming, but unfortunately, sometimes they interrupt the narrative, especially if we're the type that reads a chapter and then goes to bed, and then passes through the veil and wakes up the next day with a new chapter in mind and nothing from the old chapter still in mind. If that's what happens here, then we miss some of the point of chapter 5's beginning. It's a rough one. It's hard. But this is the opposite counterpart of consecration. We saw the positive at the end of 4 in the example of Barnabas. We see the negative at the beginning of 5 in the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Husband and wife, equally yoked in something negative. Now, five, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, but a certain man. Now, but is a conjunction that's a strange way to start a conversation. If I walked up to you and hadn't seen you in a long time and just said, but you'd look at me strange, like, did I miss something? Oh, yeah, yeah, you missed the end of chapter 4. <laughs> so here it is. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, just like so many of their newly converted Christian neighbors had. But notice what they did. They kept back part of the price. Now, his wife also being privy to it, so she's in on this as well. They know what they're doing together. They've decided on it. And he brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Because that's what you do as Christian converts. I mean, everyone else is consecrating. I am too. At least I want you to think I am. I sold my land, and, and here's all that I made from it. Because it's, 
It's a 100% all-in, wholehearted consecration. It all belongs to the Lord. So, apostles, Peter, John, others, you can do whatever you want with it. Now, Peter, who is incredibly in tune with the Spirit ever since that Pentecostal experience, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, quick question for you as we do our tithing settlement here. Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now notice, you're not lying to me, you're lying to the Holy Ghost, because I wouldn't have known about your lie, but he sure does. The Holy Ghost recognized your falsity and revealed it to me. So, why would you do that? And then he explains, whilst it remained, in other words, while the land was still in your hand, was it not thine own? In fact, even after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? What Peter is hinting at there is agency is being honored the whole way through. You didn't have to sell your land. And when you did, you didn't have to give us the money. Consecration is completely voluntary. We're not demanding this of you. So it was all in your hand. It was all in your power. So here's the question. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Again, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So do you understand the problem? Peter does perfectly. His concern with Ananias here is his hypocrisy. It's not holding back. It's that it's claiming to be all in when you're still withholding part. I'm so grateful for your donation but please don't call it consecration when it isn't. Now, please keep this in mind. His, I've, I joked when I call it, called it tithing settlement. Uh, it's, it's not that entirely. But what is happening here is claiming something that is not true. Doing a good deed, but pretending it's a great deed. Like I said, giving a donation, but pretending it was consecration. Now, what happens next is shocking. Okay, this is wild, so buckle up. Verse 5 and 6. And Ananias, hearing these words, is like, oh no, I've been caught. I've been found out. How on earth could he have known? Well, it wasn't earth. It was heaven. It was the Spirit. He fell down. But more than fall, he gave up the ghost. He died. I mean, I've never seen a casualty at tithing settlement, but here we've got one. He gave up the ghost. And the ghost seems to be leaving a lot of other people too, at least in part. It says that great fear came on all them that heard these things. And can you blame him? It's like, whoa, Peter's serious. No, no, it's not Peter. God is serious. Serious about honesty. Concerned about hypocrisy. Oh, he takes these things seriously. Now the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. There you go. Was that like the deacon's quorum and they were there? I don't know. But the, the, Ananias is dead and buried. Now, this sounds incredibly harsh. But remember, Peter is not executing capital punishment. Peter's just asking the question, why would you do this, Ananias? This is, this is not between you and me. This is between you and God. And I'm going to leave you with God. And you two are going to have to work out your heart and its hypocrisy. But it's the hypocrisy that is so fatal.
for lack of a better term. It's what killed him. And again, it, Peter didn't had nothing to do with this. Do you remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree? And what a strange occasion it was that he who always seemed to bless things and give life to things sucked the life out of this poor, innocent plant. Well, it wasn't so poor. It wasn't so innocent. Well, actually, it was poor. <laughs> poor in fruit, but rich in leaves. And remember the fig tree's, fig tree's sin was hypocrisy? You weren't supposed to have fruit. It was early in the season, but all those leaves suggest that there should have been something to find beneath. And so all the Lord did in cursing it was bringing the invisible into visible form, almost turning the tree inside out. If you're dead on the outside and only want to show life on the inside, if you're a whited sepulcher, then let's start putting the bones on the outside of the building, shall we? Let's let the tree wither, since it's not bearing fruit anyway. Let's even take the leaves away. Fully expose it for what it really is. Well, Ananias is the human equivalent of the barren fig tree. So many leaves. Look what I've done. Consecrating, laying it at your feet. But not the full fruits to back it up. Now remember, he wasn't alone in this. His wife had planned a little conspiracy between the two of them. We're going to plan and do this together. And sadly, verse 7, <laughs> oh, they should have done the whole thing together. But eventually, it's, it's unity <laughs> restored. It was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, so she's clueless about the whole thing. Her husband is now in the grave, freshly buried, and she's unaware. No, instead, she just comes in. Sorry, I missed the first round of tithing settlement. Just thought I'd come and give my, you know, get, get my receipt. I want to frame it and put it on the wall as a true consecrator so everyone will look up to me. Well, she comes in. Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? We would say, Is this a full tithing? And she said, uh, yeah, Yay. I mean, isn't that what my husband told you? I mean, of course it is. Yay for so much. Oh, then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? How could you be birds of a feather? How could you coordinate your lie? This is shared hypocrisy between husband and wife, equally yoked in dishonesty and deception. So he says, Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Ooh, Peter, again, not softening any of this. This is the first word she's received that her husband is dead. Oh, those that just buried your husband? And she's like, wait, 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 what? I was, I'm gone for three hours? What happened? Oh, you're about to find out personally, because they're here to bury you too. And I'm not, I'm not executing any of the punishment, but the Lord does seem to curse fig trees that are barren beneath. Sure enough, verse 10, then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Okay. I guess God means business, doesn't he? I guess he's serious that 
Zion, for it really to be one heart and one mind, these have to be true hearts and true minds. Dwelling in righteousness can't just be skin deep. It has to go all the way down. And making sure there's no poor among us doesn't mean just giving a part so that ah, we can still be richer than those around us since I'm holding on to it myself. By the way, in that verse when it said that great fear came upon all the church, it's the first time in the book of Acts the word church is used. But that's what this group is becoming. The kingdom of God upon the earth, the church of Jesus Christ of ancient day saints. Oh, I hope our Latter-day equivalent is just as righteous and just as honest, just as true as they were. Absent the Ananiases and Sapphiras that might be among us. Well, verse 12, By the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, that place of judgment, that reality of unity there, one accord. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Again, there's two very different reactions to all of this. All these signs, all these wonders, all these incredible things taking place. Healings, bringing to life, but also oh, falling to death. This is a life or death proposition that Peter is preaching, setting before them. And multitudes come running, but of the rest, it said, no one durst join themselves. Durst? That means dared. I don't dare join something that takes righteousness that seriously. No wonder some are scared of the sacraments. No wonder some are put off by God's great expectations. And yet, the blessings, the blessings are so incredible that it's worth coming and coming and running. In fact, I see that in the next verse. Verse 15, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and on couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came out also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folk and them which were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed every one. Again, we see the apostles doing just what Jesus had done. But this one's an interesting one. Jesus had healed by the laying on of hands. He'd healed by saying the word. He'd, he, he'd healed by spitting on the ground and anointing eyes. But I don't remember a story of his shadow healing anyone. And yet Peter here, that's, that's an amazing example. People are so struck by the power of God and Peter, again, always making sure that they know it's the power of God and not of Peter, that if they know he's walking by, you don't even have to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. Just get, see where the sun is, and picture, okay, if the sun's from there, Peter's going to walk by, about this high. If I'm this close in the shadow, perfect. And as long as I'm close enough that his shadow will overshadow me, then I will be swallowed up in the light of the Lord. I'll be healed. And they were. But again, if Peter were here, we'd say, quit talking about me. 
Why do you keep bringing me up? In fact, there's an image here that I absolutely love because it was Peter's shadow. And if you have a shadow, then you are not the light. Think about that. Lights cast shadows, but they don't have shadows, right? No wonder there's no talk about Christ's shadow. He's the light of the world. But if we can align ourselves, think about this literally. If you take the, the, the source of the light and then the object that's in front of it, the light casts the shadow from that object in a straight line. And if I can come into alignment with the light of the world and the servants of God that are standing before him, that's how healing flows unto me. I would stand in the shadow of Russell M. Nelson any day. I would stand in the shadow of my stake president or of my bishop. I would stand in the shadow of anyone doing their very best to lead me to the Lord. Because if they are in line with the light, then their shadow will bring me into alignment as well. None of them have the power to heal me. But they all are in a position to point me to the source of the healing that I need. Peter, bless you. Although I know it's not you. I get it. Well, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up. And they're ticked. Remember what they threatened Peter about the, the day before? Remember what they were talking about? And you do not talk about Jesus ever again? Well, oh, the genie's out of the bottle. The light is shining forth. The high priest rose up and all that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, the ones in charge of the temple where so much of this is happening, where the apostles are spending so much time. They're the ones opposed to the doctrine of the resurrection, which the apostles oh, keep on teaching. And they were filled with indignation. <laughs> Compare that to the apostles who always seem to be filled with the Holy Ghost. But these indignant Jewish leaders laid their hands on the apostles. That's another irony, since the apostles are always laying their hands on others to bless them. And they put them in the common prison. Again, irony, compared to the apostles bringing everyone in to the common faith. Okay, fine. Back in jail. Wonder if the layman is still with them. I don't know. <laughs> Leaping around somewhere, but here they are, and they're not alone there. Verse 19, but the angel of the Lord, he's there too, by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, go, stand and speak in the temple, <laughs> just where you were yesterday, to the people that were all there before. All the words of this life just like you were doing earlier. In other words, don't pause your mission for a moment. Just pick up right where you left off. And when they heard that, they acted. They entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. They didn't hesitate for a second. They go straight back to where they were. But, and this is where the story becomes almost comical, the high priest came and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. <laughs> well, you see why this is comic relief? They're about to be surprised, because they send the soldiers to go bring back the prisoners. Verse 22, when the officers came and found them not in the prison, 
they returned and told, saying, uh, <laughs> The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. So it was exactly the way we left it, at least on the outside. But when we had opened, we found no men within. This was an empty cell, just like the empty tomb that had been shut with all safety, that had keepers placed there to keep watch. But there's no stopping this. There's no confining the living or the dead. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. And I love that phrase. Like we saw earlier in the Gospels. Will the end be worse from, than the beginning? What is happening? What are we going to do? What's going to become of all this? Verse 25. Then came one and told them, saying, uh, Bad news, boss. Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple, exactly where you were trying to keep them from, and teaching the people, uh, doing exactly what you told them not to do. Notice, by the way, they just broke out of prison, basically. And they're not trying to hide. They're doing the exact opposite. They're going to as public a place as possible. And they're trying to be seen. They're hoping to be heard. They're in the temple teaching, of all places. And then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. I mean, they want to be the ones doing the stoning, not the ones being stoned. What they are doing, they know it's wrong, just like the mock trials of Jesus. But it's like, we gotta, we got to squash this thing. we we got to nip it in the bud. So they come out and they're like, hello, Peter, John, so funny to see you here. <laughs> Um, would, would you mind coming with us just for a moment? Uh, we're, we're so amazed by these incredible truths that you're teaching. How about a, a more private audience? Uh, no, nothing to worry about, people. Wow, a lot of people. Um, we're on your side. Fingers crossed. We're just going to take them in to have a little discussion. Believe us. Well, verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Again, they couldn't even bring it up. <laughs> what part of don't talk about him ever again did you not understand? Was it not straight? Was it not a command? Were the threats insufficient? Ah, behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Oh, again, another irony. You asked to bear that blood yourselves. And as for filling Jerusalem with our doctrine, oh, it's not ours. It's his. It is the doctrine of Christ, and we will bear testimony of it for the rest of our lives. Faith, which you lack. Repentance, which you refuse baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and those are gifts that you're unwilling to receive. Filled with that doctrine, our hearts filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with boldness, you filled with indignation. Oh, something's going to have to spill out somewhere. Sure enough, verse 29, then Peter 
and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. They'd made up their minds. No man can serve two masters, and they'd already chosen the master they would serve. It's going to be God, not men. It's going to be heaven, not earth. We only fear one kind of death, and it's the spiritual kind. <laughs> no wonder we don't fear you. There's nothing you can do to us. So they say, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Peter going back to that same first discussion he always taught. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince. That's that same word they used earlier that can mean author or founder or pioneer. He is that prince. He's a savior. And he's come to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And if that's what he's come to give, then why won't you accept these gifts? Why won't you accept Jesus for who, not only who he was, but who he is? The Prince of Life. Your Savior. You see why we're not afraid of you? We have a Savior. You see why we're not even afraid of death? He already conquered it. And as a result, that explains our boldness. It also explains our invitation for you to come and see for yourselves who Jesus really is. You see, verse 32, we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. So you don't have to take our word for it. The Spirit will bear witness of this truth. You just have to act on the Spirit's invitation. Now, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Now, do you remember the first time Peter preached this basic message to the multitudes? Called them out for the hand they played in Christ's crucifixion as well. But what happened to their hearts? Remember this? It said that their heart was pricked. And what was the result? They wanted to repent. They wanted to change. And they did. Here, the heart, it's the same message to similar people. And yet, the heart is different. These hearts were cut. Those other hearts were pricked. It seems to suggest something about the state of the heart. Is it hard or soft? Soft hearts get pricked. When you feel it, it's a guilty conscience. It's a twinge of regret. It's godly sorrow. But it's a prick that we respond to with penitence, humility, change, repentance. Whereas the hard heart won't even feel the prick. It has to be cut. Remember what Nephi said to Laman and Lemuel? The wicked take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. And if it hurts like that, I guess it had to. You weren't willing to be soft enough to be pricked. You were so hard you had to be cut. Your heart had to be broken, ground down to powder in hopes that new life could be poured into it with some living water. That's what happens with clay that becomes hardened. You can't reshape it. A prick alone won't do. And how do these people respond with their cut, hardened hearts? we got to kill these people. Let's slay them. And in verse 34, there's one that isn't quite so sure. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee, named Gamaliel. We'll find out later that this is actually Paul's teacher, 
It's like, what rabbi do you st study under? Who's your sensei? <laughs> For Paul, it was this same guy, Gamaliel. Here we learn a little bit about him. He's a doctor of the law. He's had a reputation among all the people. And here, he commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. I don't want them to overhear what I'm saying. But here's what I'm saying. He said unto them, Ye men of Israel, my fellow Pharisees, my oh, opposing Sadducees, members of the Sanhedrin, all of us, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. So think very carefully about what you're about to do. What's the best approach to end the influence of this Jesus? Well, like a good lawyer, he's going to bring up two precedents for them to ponder. First, verse 36, For before these days rose up Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, oh, about 400, joined themselves. <laughs> but what happened to old Theudas, the, the somebody? Well, he turned out to be a nobody. He was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. So, exhibit A, yeah, somebody who thought he was somebody, and, and it came to nothing. Now, Exhibit B. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. I mean, when you're getting taxed, I mean, it's easy to, to get people up in arms to fight those who are exacting them. Yeah, sure enough, many people were drawn away after him. But what happened to him and his followers? He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. So there you have it. There have been messianic figures in the past. False prophets who claimed to be true ones, but were, but were proven for what they were. It just was a matter of time. Falsehood seems to collapse under its own weight eventually. And not enough time has passed since this last oh, would-be Messiah claimed to be somebody he wasn't. So let's give it time. Verse 38, Now I say unto you, refrain from these men. Let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. Just like it did for Theudas, just like it did for Judas. We can just chalk up Jesus as one more on the list of frauds. On the other hand, if it be of God, I hate to even think of that as a possibility, but that is the other option. And if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. I'm amazed at Gamaliel's admission there. Men and brethren, what shall we do? I'm not saying repent and be baptized, far from it, but I am saying refrain. In some ways, are we just adding advertising? Are we giving them something else to claim? Are we fanning the flames of this movement in our efforts to put them out? So let's quit adding fuel to the fire. Let's just let it die out of its own. I'm sure it will. I hope it will. Because, oh, heaven forbid, if this is from heaven, I don't want to be heaven's foe. So let's just let this play itself out. Let's let time 
be our judge and our executioner. I'm sure that's what it'll eventually do. Oh, is that so? I do wish there were more people in the world like Gamaliel. He ends up still on the wrong side of history here, but at least he was letting history unfold and play its part. He was just allowing people to know things by their fruits. And I wish more people would do that. I wish those who attacked the church would take a play from Gamaliel's playbook and just let it alone. I'm not trying to attack our opposers. Why do they feel so moved to attack us? Especially those who know the book of Acts so well and can probably quote Gamaliel's words. More than quote. Can we implement? I hope so. Now, verse 40. To him they agreed. So, cooler heads prevailed. Okay, And Gamaliel was, again, had in reputation among them. So, like, hmm, that's a good, good, good call, Rabbi Gamaliel. They agreed. But there's still something they want to do here. Because they're still concerned that uh, is time, time doesn't always go fast enough. So when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they didn't beat them the first time. Because remember, they admitted, we, we have nothing on you. You've done nothing wrong. Well, they've still done nothing wrong. Unless you count, well, a jailbreak. But that was angelic. <laughs> they beat them. The Greek word for that, by the way, is strong. It means to skin or to thrash. It suggests some kind of flogging or scourging. When I think of beating, it's more like fists, maybe a stick. But what we studied two weeks ago with the crucifixion and the scourging of Jesus, this is the kind of word that would be used to describe such things. And so, is it possible that Peter and John have been scourged just like their master had been? Well, after it's been done, they, the rulers, that is, commanded that they, the apostles, should not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. You see, I guess our threats weren't sufficient. They didn't take them seriously. Well, now they will, because we'll act on them. And this is a preview of coming afflictions if you ever bring up Jesus again. Well, James and John departed from the presence of the council. Departed? What would that look like? Were they limping? Were they staggering? Were they stumbling? I don't know, but the one thing I do know, they were rejoicing. Rejoicing that they, little old they, fishermen, people of no consequence, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The name they weren't supposed to speak about, but couldn't be stopped. Because daily, in the temple, and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Oh, fat lot of good your threats will do. Not even imprisonment or physical violence could dissuade them. It only fanned the flames of faith of these bold, courageous apostles. And it's been that way ever since. 
way back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had told them, Blessed are you if they persecute you. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. And I know you know those prophets. You, you'll quote from them eventually. To join Jesus in what Paul would later call the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, that's, that's a noble group. But there's a cost of admission to it. And it's the price of persecution. It's worth paying. I've experienced some. I'm sure I'll experience more. I pray I can handle it all the way Peter and John did, the way Joseph Smith did, the way Jesus Christ did. Not saying it pridefully and not shoving it down the throats of your persecutors. Rather, asking for their forgiveness since they may not know all that they're doing. But to have the courage and the commitment to Christ not just to endure these things, and not even just to endure them well, but to rejoice over them? That's the part that always blows me away. I always picture James or John and Peter limping their way out from before the Sanhedrin, kind of licking their wounds. And if it's a flogging, if it's a beating akin to a scourging, then there, there are wounds aplenty. And I picture Peter turning to John and Close friends as they are, are you okay, John? Can I help? Can we stumble forward together? Maybe the lame man comes and <laughs> leaps over to help carry them home. I picture John saying to Peter, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm okay. Ah, are you all right? Is your arm in its socket? Are you... Is the blood dried? And as they're there checking on each other, limping home together, they just look at each other through black eyes with wounded arms. And a big smile spreading across their face, cracked lips notwithstanding. And them saying, that was awesome. Oh, ouch. Yeah. That was amazing. Can you believe that people take us seriously? <laughs> us. Oh, that's what Joseph Smith was so shocked about. I was a boy of no consequence. Did you re Why would you care about a nobody? Unless, of course, I was going to prove a disturber and an annoyer of Satan's kingdom. Which is exactly what he was. Which is exactly what Peter and John were. Oh yeah, we're disturbers and annoyers of Satan's kingdom. Because we're here to build the kingdom of Christ. Come what may. My fellow disciples. Oh, those of us among the 3,000 or the 5,000 or the millions and millions of saints across the earth that are bearing witness of Jesus, no matter what the world says, that, are, that have the boldness and courage to stand up for truth in the face of opposition, can we rejoice? 
Can we overcome fear with faith? Can our boldness <laughs> spill out over the brim? So that we will bear our own witness. It can be as special to us as that of the special witnesses themselves. That Christ lives in us. I love the way Acts chapter 5 ends. It's in some ways an invitation for us to join them. Suffer alongside them. Suffer alongside Christ. To be true to what we know of Him. Years and years ago when an Elder Holland was President Holland, but President of BYU, he gave a talk. Oh, those old talks. He was young but a pulpit pounder from the very beginning. And he gave a talk called, Are You True? In which he told the story of a convert to the church that, I think in high school, had a copy of the Book of Mormon at one point, and a friend saw her with it, and, or someone who saw her with it, and just said, Is that a religious book? And she said, Yeah. And when he found out that she was Latter-day Saint, he asked a question, but phrased it in an interesting way. He just said, are you true? Now, Elder Holland explained, he probably meant, like, are you active? Are you faithful in your church? Do you, like, go to church? Or is this just some kind of curiosity that you've got in your locker? And this convert mustered all her courage and said, yeah, I'm true. As Elder Holland went on to explain in that talk, we're past the day where we have to true, prove that the church is true, or that the gospel's true, or that the Book of Mormon is true, or that Jesus is true. That's all been established. Through the power of the Holy Ghost bearing truth to our souls, we can say that we know all those things are true. But that leaves us with the final question. Are we? Are we true? I testify of the truth of these things and pray that we can all bear the testimony of Peter and John that we will be true to Him, come what may.